And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With you till 3 on this Tuesday with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Coming up, have NBA teams not learned their lesson? Plus, why now may be the time for Baker Mayfield to finally get moved to Carolina? And did we get some, did we get some clarity on Deshaun Watson? Plus, Brooks Kepka, the latest golfer to join the uh, Live Golf Tour. We'll get to our Tuesday Top 10. Who will be the best college football teams over the next three years? We'll hear from Spencer Rattler in an interview he did yesterday. We'll catch up with Landon Powell around 2 o'clock today, former Gamecock and now national championship head coach. We'll talk a little baseball. Braves got a nice win last night. And a whole lot more throughout the afternoon. You can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter, at Morrow Middays. On Facebook, at ESPN Charleston. Via email, studio, at kirkmanbroadcasting.com. Or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you until 3 on this Tuesday, Trent's on the Steel Wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing phenomenal. What a great night of hockey last night. The Lightning getting a win, potentially coming back. The barn was good in Tampa last night. I'm not giving up on the Lightning. It was a great night. Celebrated a friend's 21st birthday. It was nice. We had a good time, and I'm glad to be here. It's a beautiful Tuesday here in the Low Country with you, kind sir, Luke Morrow. Yeah. That's a little tough on a Monday night. Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. It was it was a little quiet on the uh, on the streets of downtown, but hey, we uh, we made them loud. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. We got the party going. I could imagine. <laughs> uh, let me start with the Kyrie Irving stuff. You know, and we won't dive too deep into it, but I do find it interesting. They say, you know, what's the point of uh, history class? Why do we have history class to learn from prior mistakes so we won't repeat them moving forward? And I think in the NBA, there are some lessons to be learned as well that teams can try to avoid making a similar mistake moving forward. And there's a couple of things that I think you take away from this year's NBA season that if you're paying attention, those could be those lessons learned that you take with you moving forward. Such as, you know, you can't really build around a big guy anymore. We already kind of knew that, but some teams are still trying it, whether it's Jokic in Denver, Embiid in Philadelphia, 
DeAndre Ayton isn't the star in Phoenix, but he's supposed to play a big role. Things didn't go great there. Teams that one of their better players is a forward, right, didn't fare so well. Coaching, I think, also is still important, but not necessarily the big names. When Steve Kerr was hired, he had never been a head coach before. Worked out pretty well. Won a championship his first year at Golden State and now has turned himself into one of the all-time greats when it comes to coaching. Right On the other side, Ime uh, Adoka, former player, but not some sort of star. First year as a head coach, got the Celtics to the finals. You look at even like a Brad Stevens. He was a big name in college basketball, but a little bit of a surprise in the NBA, and it was his first job in the NBA, and he did pretty well at the Celtics before that. Mike Budenholzer, Nick Nurse came from the G League, or even he was coaching like the CBA, all these minor leagues. First job with Toronto, got them an NBA championship, so on and so forth. That's not necessarily about the big names. It's not so much Phil Jackson anymore having to bring him to L.A. Now, coaching is still important. We saw that in the finals. I thought Steve Kerr eventually outcoached Ime Adoka after Ime, I thought, had the better game one. Coaching still plays a role, but you don't necessarily need that former star or the big name at coaching. And then I think the biggest lesson we also learned in all this is that you also don't necessarily need to buy a championship. You can now develop one. In fact, you could always do that. I think some teams just got carried away with the idea of speeding up the process or trying to. And I always compare it's like the microwave versus the oven, right? And these super teams are like the microwave, not being very patient, trying to uh, blast your way to some sort of championship, get there quicker. The oven is a little more natural, and it may take a little bit longer. Well, that's developing through the draft. And we saw this year the Golden State Warriors win another championship. And that team was developed through the draft. They did add Kevin Durant, but the first championship, the last championship, right, was with a bunch of guys that they drafted and developed and did a good job building that team. In regards, uh, you know, in terms of uh, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, now Jordan Poole, even, again, the head coach, Steve Kerr, never been a head coach before. You bring him in, you put it all together, worked out pretty well. The Celtics on the other side, built through the draft. They at least got to the NBA Finals this year. You look at some of the other teams, the Dallas Mavericks. They got their star through the draft. A trade on draft night, but the draft nonetheless. All right, the Memphis Grizzlies, John Morant and that entire operation coming through the draft. Milwaukee Bucks got Giannis through the draft. All right, the 76ers have long been trying to build their team, trust the process through the draft. And so it's interesting that this is the week we get the Kyrie Irving news when the draft is Thursday night. And you get the typical names being mentioned. Right, the Lakers, the Knicks, these big brands, big cities. Could Kyrie go to one of these teams? I love Kyrie Irving. Uh, I've been a a staunch defender of Kyrie Irving. I think he's a great player. I don't know if he makes your team great. I think he's an incredible talent. I don't know if he's the best thing for your team. And we've seen things play out poorly year after year. The one time it worked was in Cleveland when he had LeBron James that was able to help get them to that finals. Now, Kyrie made the biggest shot of the finals, but they're not winning that thing without LeBron. The Cavs were nothing before LeBron came back with Kyrie Irving leading the way. Not only does he need somebody else with him, but somebody that's maybe strong enough to kind of corral him. And you could say if he goes to the Lakers, he'll be with LeBron again. But the Lakers, if you try to go and get a Kyrie Irving, and I don't know how likely any of this would be, and you're talking about like a Russell Westbrook, if you were to, to keep the team, I don't know what you'd have to give up. But if you're looking at the roster now and you just drop Kyrie in there and you're talking like, wow, what a great complement of stars. LeBron and Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook and Kyrie. It's just kind of falling into the old trap and ignoring what you're seeing 
from your industry, from the sport, the league, from the other successful teams right now, that this is not how they're building. Not by trying to combine a bunch of older stars that are tough to get along with and kind of ignore the culture or the uh, the community feel or the locker room. You know, that's part of what makes the Warriors so great is that these guys have stayed together throughout this championship run, and they are, you know, like, like a family, that community that they've built and the culture and the ability to develop these guys. So then you bring in an Andrew Wiggins, and it works perfectly because you already have a, a winning culture that he can step into, and he flourishes in that type of setup. Instead of just trying to mesh all these stars together and hoping it works and not worrying so much about the team, instead the star players. All right, it's one of those cases where, like, the parts are better than the individuals or vice versa. And the teams you hear, like the Lakers and the Knicks and the organizations that are big brands but haven't been run all that well. And they're the ones that are also reportedly maybe ignoring what it has taken, at least this past year, in recent years, to try to build a top team in the NBA and going back to that uh, microwave version. Ignoring what the league is showing you about, yeah, you know, the best way may be to develop through the draft. This week, forget about Kyrie Irving especially if you're picking towards the top of the draft. Pay closer attention to that. You know, the Knicks have the number four pick, or they're talking about the Knicks trading into the top four. Kings have the number four pick. Uh, They're talking about the Knicks trading into, you know, the top five. Something like that may be better than trying to bring in a Kyrie Irving. We're seeing in the NBA that the better way to build teams is kind of through the draft, developing, having winning cultures instead of just trying to mash a bunch of stars together and just because you have a lot of talent on the roster, you imagine this will lead to a championship, this will work out. Right? Sometimes you put talented people together and they don't get along well in your company. Right? Or you find two attractive people that are both successful, like in Hollywood, and they get into a relationship together and you figure they both have the same career, they're both very successful, they're two very attractive people, and it usually doesn't work. Just because you have two talents, or in this case potentially four talents, and you put them all in the same roster, you put them in the same room, doesn't mean they're all going to get along or lead to a championship. And we're seeing in the NBA the better way to build a team right now is more through the draft than the big star in free agency. More of the oven version of building and developing a team instead of the microwave version of just going out, getting all the big stars, putting them together, and hopefully our talent will win out. It works a lot in, say, like college football or even college basketball. The team with more talent typically just wins. But in the NBA, at least this past year, we're seeing that it wasn't so much about the teams with the best talent. Right? Ask Brooklyn where they were a mess. The Lakers were a mess. The Clippers were banged up. Things didn't go well this year. Instead, it's kind of like uh, the cultures being built with Ime Adoka in the first year of Boston and the Warriors and what they've done over the past eight years. And going out and trying to acquire Kyrie to build some sort of new super team is kind of ignoring the direction of the league right now. Now, here was Brian Windhorst this morning on Get Up talking about how and this is viewed, right, this really may just be more of a leverage play, and nothing may come from this. But here's Windhorse on the latest with Kyrie Irving. So last, late last week, a couple of teams um, were reached out to uh, to let them know that Kyrie Irving may end up being on the market. It wasn't a complete and total surprise because it was understood that the Nets could play hardball. Kyrie has come on the record and said, I plan to be back. And the Nets weren't really under any obligation to offer him a full guaranteed max contract. So most of the league is reading this as a leverage play. Kyrie trying to leverage the Nets into giving him something that he wants on a new contract, whether he opts out and signs a new deal or extends his current contract. Um, 
the, the, the reality is that he doesn't have a lot of options. And what this will probably really come down to is if he is willing to actually opt out of his contract and leave $36 million on the table and open up the window to actually go someplace else without needing the Nets to trade him there. That is really the game of chicken here. If he's... If the Nets believe he's willing to do that and potentially leave money on the table, they may be more willing to guarantee more money. If he, if he, if they call his bluff and he it ends up staying in his contract, then uh, the Nets would have you know good position. But at the end of the day, I think most of the league believes eventually he will come back to the Nets. It's just a matter of working out the deal. Windhorse this morning may not be anything more than a leverage play, and I think if I'm another team in the NBA, that's fine with me. I don't care anyways. It's not even about Kyrie Irving. It's about the shape of the NBA right now. Usually, sports, right, they're copycat leagues. You look at what got those teams to the championship, and you try to duplicate it. You look at some of the teams that were most successful. The Mavericks, the Suns, the Warriors, mostly built through the draft. And you look at the, the Celtics and the Warriors in the finals, and even the Bucks winning before that, teams that were mostly built through the draft. They didn't go out and get some sort of big star like a Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant or a LeBron James. Those teams were not winning in the playoffs. So this week, as we get ready for the draft and Kyrie Irving becomes available, and this is a story that probably won't go away for the next few weeks. If I'm an NBA team, I'm probably more interested in the draft on Thursday anyways. When it comes to the draft, we'll talk about it. We'll break it down as we get closer the next couple of days. I've given you my order before. I think Ben Caro's the best uh, player in the draft. I'd probably put Jabari Smith number two. Chet Holmgren, I'd probably still have maybe even behind uh, Jaden Ivey and Keegan Murray. I'm not as high on Holmgren. But we'll see how things play out Thursday. We'll break it down as well. I'd be more excited about uh, trying to get a Bancaro or a Jabari Smith and building around them than bringing in Kyrie Irving and hoping it works. It hasn't worked anywhere he's gone. Right? Don't sacrifice the locker room for potential talent. And I'm a big Kyrie Irving guy. I love Kyrie. I think he's incredibly talented. But I don't know if he's a good fit for a lot of teams right now compared to get a young, talented star, build around him, kind of like Milwaukee, Dallas, Boston, what Golden State has done over the years. Right now, that's what's winning in the league, not the super teams. When we come back, is now the time to move Baker Mayfield to the Panthers? Are we getting closer? We'll get to that. Plus, potentially some huge news in regards to Deshaun Watson's situation. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Now the time for Baker Mayfield to get moved to the Panthers. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Seems like a big development in the Deshaun Watson situation as uh, we had news just before we came on the air that according to Tony Busby, who's the attorney for the uh, accusers suing Deshaun Watson, that reportedly he has settled 
20 of the 24 lawsuits against him. Now they are confidential settlements, so I guess we will never get, I assume, we'll never get the uh, terms of the settlements. We do have the, uh, we had the reports that about a year ago, he was offering each woman, uh, what, $100,000? Probably would be more at this point, I would think. Maybe not. And uh, we'll see now what happens moving forward. 20 of the 24 for Watson. And for the NFL, maybe they were waiting to see, you know, how things would finish up. So if you get all of these lawsuits taken care of, then for Deshaun uh, or for the NFL, maybe they'll feel like they're in a position where now they'd be comfortable with levying the suspension finally and whatever that may be. When you settle, a lot of times people look at that as like some sort of admission of guilt. Not always, not necessarily. A lot of times people will settle to avoid things from going to court to getting, you know, to, to have even worse details come out. And for Deshaun, we've already gotten enough of the bad details that I think his reputation has taken a hit regardless, that maybe at this point, especially now as we get ready towards the season and you want to find out your punishment or get some clarity, maybe now you're willing to come around and settle and kind of put this thing behind you. Although, again, reportedly he offered, they tried to settle originally about a year ago. Doesn't necessarily mean you're guilty in trying to avoid a more severe punishment. It could be just, A, trying to make it go away, and B, trying to avoid from more information coming out. Right, like Tom Brady during the whole uh, deflate gate when he uh, smashed his phones. I don't know if he was necessarily hiding something about the footballs. Maybe. But also, I think you just want to keep like your own personal and for everything being released off of your phone. You don't want the NFL going through your phone for all the other stuff. It's just a matter of privacy. You don't want anything else to be uh, seen or released. So, you know, in that case, that's a little bit different, not necessarily settling. But a lot of times in a case, you'll just settle to just, you know, because you don't want anything else to be discovered through the process. On the flip side, for the women, you may say, right, oh, they were just in this for the money. Well, not necessarily. At this point, this is really the only way you can punish Deshaun Watson. If you're one of these women and you went through something that, you know, what you're accusing him of doing is true and accurate, uh, what are your other options? What else can you do at this point? I mean, this is the best you could do. Try to get something out of it and try to uh, bring it to light, the situation that he put you in. And at this point, right, it's kind of the best you could do is just uh, you know, punish him by making him have to pay all these women now. Now he got a huge contract with the Browns, so that obviously helps the situation. Uh, but we'll see what sort of suspension may come down. Reports over the weekend were like a severe suspension, which who knows what that truly means. I, I guess it depends on the person. You may consider a six-game suspension severe or a 10-game, or you know, maybe a year isn't even severe enough for you. So we'll see what type of suspension we're looking at. When it comes to Deshaun and the Browns, look, we are a very forgiving nation. We move on fairly quickly. So I do think it's interesting that for the Browns, they have egg on their face right now, no doubt, for bringing in Deshaun Watson and giving him the huge contract. I wasn't a fan of the largest contract and the reward of getting the largest contract in NFL history with the accusations that were being thrown around. If you or I had these accusations, I don't think we'd be getting a new job. I think the company would be very hesitant to hire you when you have that hanging over your head, even if you're an innocent man let alone hiring you and making you like the highest paid employee in company history with all that hanging over your head. I thought that was a bad look. I thought it was kind of spitting in the face of the accusations by the Browns and Deshaun. Now, of course, if you're Deshaun, you're going to take all the money you can get. But I thought it was a little tone deaf from all involved. But with that said, for Cleveland, while they have egg on their face right now, while they may not be able to have Deshaun this year, 
It is a long-term contract. And again, we kind of forgive and forget for better or worse. Ben Roethlisberger dealt with his suspension, and then he was fine. Played, you know, 12 more years with the Steelers, and nobody really thought twice about it. And that's a little bit different than what Deshaun's been accused of, but you get the idea. We've had terrible people play in the NFL that you root for nonetheless, and they move around in the league, and they go out and they have success, and they play well, and, and you kind of uh, you move past whatever the accusations were or whatever they actually did, and you focus more on just the football after a little while. So for the Browns, it's not like they signed Deshaun to a one-year deal and now he can't play. You look at the other teams that were interested, the Panthers, the Falcons, Beyond this year, who has the better outlook at the quarterback position? It's still the Browns. Because while you may not have Deshaun Watson for this year, he'll come back the following year, whether you like it or not. Right? Maybe your opinion has changed for good on Deshaun. But he'll probably be the quarterback of the Browns in 2023, and the Browns fans already love him, and they keep defending him currently, and they'll forget about it. And, they're, and the longer we go, and you'll say, ah, you know, he, he served his time, sat out a year, cost him some money, he settled the cases. Right, then you just get back to football. And Deshaun will be their quarterback in 2023. And for Carolina, who knows? They still have to figure out their quarterback situation. For the Falcons, right, they did not get Deshaun Watson in the sweepstakes. Who knows? They still have to figure out their quarterback situation down the road. Neither team has a long-term answer. But for Cleveland, I mean, they do. You have to sacrifice maybe this next year and a lot of bad publicity. But when Deshaun's your starting quarterback in 2023 and all this is behind him and you don't have to worry about any more suspension and he'll be out on the field, Right, you'll be feeling uh, probably better about your quarterback situation than still the Panthers a year from now or the Falcons. That's kind of the sad reality of it all. That regardless of the punishment and regardless of what Deshaun may have or may not have done, right, even if he's suspended for the year, it's like, all right, well, you come back in 2022. You're going to make a ton of money. You'll be the starting quarterback for the Browns. Most people will move past it. And Cleveland will still be in a better position at the quarterback position, most likely, than the Panthers will at that point or the Falcons. They're still trying to figure out their quarterback position. Which takes me to the other part of this whole conversation, and that's Baker Mayfield. Albert Breer had a report over the weekend that the Browns have lowered their asking price to about $9 million. They're willing to pay half of Baker Mayfield's salary. They want to split it with the other team. So they're really coming down. They've already kind of cut their price tag in half. Now you could say, well, if you're Carolina, right, why not? Uh, you could be a little greedy. Why not wait even longer? They just drop the price tag. The longer we go, they'll probably continue to drop that price tag. But I don't know if it's necessary to try to play hardball or fool around with this whole thing. And I've said this multiple times before. You know, Sunday was just Father's Day. And one of the, the lessons that was uh, imparted on me in life by my father was that if you have the funds, then this is not how he says it, but I just thought of this now. This is how I'm going to say it, right? If you have the funds, then have the fun. That's a clever way to put it, right? If you have the money, have the experience. Now, I'm not telling you to go spend uh, your month's rent uh, to go to Disney World, and then you can't pay rent, and you're going to be out in the streets. But if you have money in the bank, and you think, like, that sounds fun, but it's a little too expensive, I don't want to do that. If you have the money to do that thing, go and do it. Right? That's not a good enough reason. I'm like, yeah, I would love to do that, but not at that price. If you have that amount of money to do it, and it doesn't put a dent into your uh, lifestyle or your savings or the bank account, go and do it. Like if you're looking at new TVs, and you think, oh, I would love a new TV, but I don't know, if that's a little too much. I don't know if I want to pay that. Will it make your life better? When you sit down in the fall, like are you going to wish you had that bigger TV and you can afford to get that bigger? Then get the bigger TV. What are you talking about? Maybe it's more than you wanted to spend, but you got the money. 
and you're not going to regret it when you're sitting there uh, on the weekends in the football season, you know, watching the Gamecocks on the 70-inch screen, right? Now, don't go make a decision that's going to keep you from eating for the week. But, like, if you have the money to spend and it's within your budget and it's something you want, even if you're spending a little more on it, you can't put a price on, uh, you know, like on that happiness, on that value of, like, a new TV for the football season or vacation for the family. And you think, yeah, it was kind of expensive. Because years from now, you'll look back on the experiences that you had and the fun time you had at Disney with the family. And you won't think back when you're looking through the scrapbook, right? I don't think you're putting receipts in the scrapbook. Yeah, it was a fun trip, but uh, it cost so much money. Oh, it was worth it. And you're doing just fine now. You were able to survive. You got through it. Right? You can always make more money. There's different ways. It's fine. And I say all this because for the Panthers, they have the third largest amount of cap space. So I know it's kind of like uh, the principle of it all, spending $9 million at this point, or before $19 million on Baker, and you already have Sam Darnold for 19, and both are kind of average quarterbacks, and you're overpaying. But it's kind of the price of doing business. The quarterback position is so important that if you think, even if it's the slightest upgrade, right, if you think Baker is still an upgrade, the Panthers, they have the funds, go and do it. right? Even if it's not uh, the new TV for the football season. Sure, you could get by with the old TV, but if you have the money in the bank and it's going to make you happier and it's going to be an upgrade and it'll be a better viewing experience throughout the fall and the weekends and you can go get that bigger TV and you can afford it and it's not going to alter your life financially, then go get the bigger TV. What are we doing here? Even if it's not a huge upgrade, right? same idea with Baker. Even if it's not like a huge upgrade over Sam Donald, if you're getting better at the quarterback position, you got to go for it. You got to take some swings, try to make it happen. I'm a Vikings fan. I remember when Teddy Bridgewater blew out his knee to the point that they almost had to cut off the leg. It was almost a career ender in practice a week before the season. And I thought, oh, well, that stinks. There goes our season. We just lost our starting quarterback. And at the time, the backup was Sean Hill for the Vikings. Oh, we're screwed. Now i got to watch Sean Hill lead this team all year. And the Vikings went out and they traded for Sam Bradford within like 48 hours. And Bradford, I always thought was very underrated. When he was healthy, he played great in Minnesota. But you would probably say Bradford, like, oh, Sam Brad, he's not that great of a quarterback. All right, but it was still an upgrade over what you had. And so it was worth it. You got to go out and you got to do something at the quarterback position. You can't just settle like, oh, well, that's it. Teddy Bridgewater's injured. There goes our season. No, you got to make something happen. You can't say like, oh, Baker made $9 million for Baker. I guess we'll just stick with Sam Darnold. Hope he's better this year. If you truly think Baker is an upgrade, and I do. Again, I don't know how big of an upgrade, but even if it's 1% better, it's worth it at the quarterback position. If you look at odds for Super Bowl champions, you'll see that they all have something in common. Good quarterbacks. We know quarterbacks drive the league. The teams with the best odds to win the Super Bowl this year are led by Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Matt Stafford. Those are the top five. Five of the best quarterbacks, maybe the best quarterbacks in the league. Bottom five teams, Davis Mills, Zach Wilson, Jared Goff, Daniel Jones, uh, Trevor Lawrence, and then you get to the Panthers, and then the Falcons, and then the Seahawks, who all have quarterback questions. Justin Fields, Mitch Trubisky. These are the bottom ten teams. Terrible quarterbacks. All about the quarterback. Am I telling you Baker's going to uh, propel the Panthers into the top ten in Super Bowl odds? Of course not. But even if it's the slightest upgrade, and you have the money to be able to, to make that change, go and do it. What are you sitting around for? And the Browns just cut their asking price in half. $9 million to get a new starting quarterback? Sounds pretty good. 
Now, you could say, well, they're already paying Sam Darnold $19 million. Plus the 9 or 10 for Baker, you're talking about $30 million on a couple of average quarterbacks. Seems like a lot of money. That's true. The Dolphins are also paying Tyreek Hill $30 million. So when you compare it, right, it's not a whole lot. Aaron Donald's making more than 30 now, I think Aaron Donald's better than Baker and Sam Donald, but you get the idea. Quarterback is so important. I wouldn't be afraid to spend, if I have the money, $30 million on my quarterback room. Carson Wentz is making $32 million this year. Jared Goff, is, uh, he has a $34 million contract. Kirk Cousins is $35 million. In fact, if you combine the contracts of Darnold and Baker Mayfield, that $30 million price tag, it wouldn't even be top 10. It wouldn't even be top 12 for highest paid quarterback. So it sounds like a lot. Like, oh, I don't know, $30 million for two average quarterbacks, Baker and Sam Darnold, $30 million? Right? And money doesn't get you as far as it once did. Ain't that the truth? But you compare it to where the league is currently. That's just kind of average. That's like middle of the league, $30 million on your quarterback room. And hopefully it would be some sort of upgrade as well, that you're getting better at that quarterback position. And for a coach like Matt Rule, who is on the hot seat and needs to show some sort of improvement, again, if you think Baker is any sort of improvement on Sam Darnold, you go make the move. If you don't think he's any better than Sam Darnold, then we don't even need to have the conversation. You don't make the move. But if you think he's better at all, you got to go give it a try. If nothing else, have the two compete. Maybe it makes Sam Darnold better. Competition is always good. You could choose from whichever one's better this summer. Give yourself another option. But the quarterback position is so important that you always have to be working at it. And when you have a chance here to add somebody that may be better, even if it's slight, you got to go do it. And I don't want to hear like, oh, $9 million. It's still a lot of money. It's a quarterback. That's what they cost. The Lions are paying Jared Goff $35 million to win three games for them. All right, Car- uh, Carson Wentz. Kirk Cousins, they're making over 30. That's the price of doing business right now. That's what you got to pay quarterbacks. And David Tepper's the richest owner in the league, and the Panthers have the third most salary cap space. The Browns just cut their price tag in half. And what are we waiting for at this point? Go and make the move. You can wait longer if you want and hope the price tag continues to drop, or you can just go get that quarterback, get him in camp, and start looking forward to the season. Right? If you have the money in the bank, and it's not going to put a dent into your budget or your finances, and it's something you want to do, go do it. Even if you spend a little more than you think you should or you thought it was going to cost you, you want the new TV and you can afford the TV, spend a little more. It's going to make you happier on the weekends. right? If Disney seems like it's oh, that's a, quite the expensive trip, but you can afford it, take your family to Disney. Years from now, you'll laugh about all the memories and meeting the characters. You're not going to talk about, yeah, but that brunch was pretty expensive. Nobody cares. You can't put a price tag on happiness. And in the NFL, it's about the quarterback hard to put a price tag on quarterbacks as well in the NFL because that's how valuable they are. That was one of the many life lessons that I learned throughout my years. You know, I always thought my grandfather was pretty wise, and then my father's passed down a lot of his advice, a lot of his own advice. You know, Father's Day, of course, was Sunday. Sebastian Maniscalco is a, a great comedian, and he put out a video on Father's Day, stepping away from the Browns and the Panthers. But this also reminded me, the Baker Mayfield and the Panthers situation reminds me of a piece of advice that I got growing up. And uh, Sebastian put out a bit that also reminds me as well. If you're not familiar, Sebastian Maniscalco, he's become like one of the biggest names in stand-up comedy. He's, he's uh, touring in arenas, selling out arenas these days. Not a lot of comedians can do that. And he's beloved by like Italians and middle-aged women. I think that's his demographic. All of my relatives love Sebastian Maniscalco. And he's funny. I like him too. Anyways, here's the clip uh, he put out on Father's Day talking about his father uh, Sunday for Father's Day. My father... Cash. That's all he had. A wad of cash growing up. No wallet. Just a wad. Just a big knot. 
with a broccoli band around the Y. <laughs> We'd negotiate. My father would negotiate prices at Sears. <laughs> it was embarrassing to go shopping with the guy. The salesman didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> the salesman like, the, the refrigerator's gonna be about $1,200 here. My father would be like, no, it's not. <laughs> We're gonna pay cash. The salesman was like, yeah, we accept cash, sir, $1,200. But they were like, cash. What's the price going to be with cash? It's not a flea market. We're at Sears. Sears may be an outdated reference of this. Are there even Sears around anymore? What's the bash, man? That's another one that reminded me. I saw that clip. That reminded me of my father's. I don't know if it's an Italian thing. I don't know if it's a father thing. I don't know. Now, my father wouldn't do it at Sears. We don't go to, like, Walmart, and he's haggling with the people. But any time where it's uh, something that you maybe, like, would finance or have payments, that was always his thought as well. And I think it makes a lot of sense, right? If you offer to pay in cash, you'll get a lower price because they just want the money now instead of waiting over time to get maybe more money, right? We're all impatient. You want money in your pocket today. You want to walk out of there with the cash in your pocket. That's always the trick my father would use as well, right? We'll pay you in cash if, uh, you know, it will be cheaper. If you knock the price down, we'll pay in cash today. You'll have the money walking out the door. I heard that from Sebastian. That was another one that reminded me of the advice I've learned throughout life. Offer to pay in cash, and maybe you'll get a lower price, even at Sears. Now, Trent, you're into uh, stand-up comedy, right? Oh, big time, yeah. Who would be on the top of your your, uh, leaderboard right now in terms of uh, your favorite or the top stand-ups going right now in the country? Ooh, wow. That's a that's a good question, Luke. Obviously, you have to put, in my opinion, uh, right now, the GOAT of the last 20 years, that being Dave Chappelle. I think he is always going to be at the top uh, of that list. Honestly, right now, with the tour that he's doing, not only in America but internationally, I would say that Tom Segura is probably, I think he's what, his fifth Netflix special is going to come out here pretty soon. I'd say Tom Segura is up there. And the third one, it's tough when you're just looking at tickets and arenas. I personally don't enjoy this guy's comedy too much. I, I enjoy his podcast, but I don't really enjoy his stand-up. Joe Rogan, I mean, he uh, yeah. he can sell out any arena that he goes to. Those are probably the biggest names in comedy right now, I would say. Would you would you agree with that list? Who, who would you uh, put on there? No, that's probably a good top three. Okay. Yeah, Segura, by the way, has like a 200-date uh, tour going on. Apparently, he's making like $50 million My from goodness. it, and so he's probably never going to tour again. So go see Tom <laughs> Segura while you can, folks. He, uh, I think he just came to Charleston not long ago, right? Or is yeah, he coming? He I did. He, he already came, right? Yeah, now. he did, I believe, May 8th, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. It was just one night. Yeah, yeah so very uh, not too long ago at all. Yeah, those are good names. I'm with you on Joe Rogan. Uh, and he's obviously incredibly successful. I've just never been a big Rogan. I, I don't know. He's not my style, I guess. His stand-up doesn't do it for me. Nah. Before before a lot of things came out about this gentleman, I would have put uh, Chris D'Elia in, oh, uh, yeah. in, my, in my top bunch. He was on a rocket yes. ship to the top. I, he was the biggest name in comedy for about two years there with his podcast, and then boom, he, he's yep. not, not a good guy. Not a good guy. No. Similarly, I think Louis C.K. was yeah. at the top of the game before similar stories came out about him, and unfortunately, he had to uh, disappear for a little while, too, well, until things blew over. Oh, uh, Andrew Schultz. Uh, Andrew yeah, Schultz is probably, is probably, I would put him in my top three, personally, because I love his comedy, but he's as far as, like, ticket sales and all that, right. I mean, he sold out Radio City twice, so, I mean, that maybe counts for something. He's part of, like, these uh, these younger comedians that are really coming up and that are big in the podcast space and have become uh, wildly popular. 
And it's interesting nowadays with the stand-up uh, comics because of because of the podcast. A lot of comedy now is uh, more about like telling stories than mm-hmm. it is like the punchlines. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just different. I know some people may not prefer that. But you think back to like, and he was so unique. But Rodney Dangerfield was just like a one-liner after one-liner after one-liner. Now it's kind of more about talking about life and telling stories about the families, almost like you're on a podcast. And they do that as well on tour in the stand-up. And um, I just it's an interesting uh, trend or change a little bit in the industry. But how popular every comedian now has a podcast. And there's a lot of comedians that I prefer the podcast. Mm-hmm. And then when you get them on stage for the stand-up, I think, like, eh, this actually isn't that great. Well, some of them I've realized, like, you and I both love uh, Chrissy Chaos. Yes. Uh, Chris DiStefano. He's yeah. awesome. But his stand-up is exactly – he tells the same stories that he's told on the podcast. And yeah. all of his podcasts are wildly successful. It's crazy. But when he does stand-up, like he did the Netflix special – and, uh, I mean, it was good, but I heard every single story right. before then. So that's where you either watch the podcast for some of these guys or you uh, or you go see him live. I feel like Andrew Schultz, he never does his bits, like, on the podcast. He will always keep them for the stage, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's good. I think Bill Burr also says the same oh, thing. Oh, jeez, yeah. yeah. I mean, top three, never mind. That's like, true. Yeah, he's get, up there, too. Yeah. yeah, we could talk. There's so many comedians, obviously, we could talk about. You know, I, growing up, I was always uh, – a bit of a tough critic, I guess. There was a lot of stand-up comics that, or I'd watch stand-up comedy, and I was never really into it as a kid because, I don't know, well, a lot of them I don't really find all that funny. I'm very strict. I'm a tough critic. Because a lot of times you go to a stand-up show, you're already expecting to laugh. Right. So right. you get a lot of built-in laughs already, like uh, the bar is a little low. For me, not so much. Like, you really have to make me laugh. Now, that's not going, that, that doesn't mean I'm not trying to laugh, but it has to be authentic. So a lot of comedians growing up, that eh, didn't really do it for me. And then again, to reference, right, Louis C.K. was probably the first one. Uh, that I thought, wow, this guy's really funny. And now I've gotten more into it over the years. But I think I'm a tougher critic. A lot of these stand-ups, I don't know, I watch them, and uh, not as great. Oh, yeah, I, I love stand-up, though. I mean, I remember Gabriel Iglesias was the first stand-up special I ever watched in 2007, immediately hooked, immediately. And then Kevin Hart got big during yeah. that time, so it was like everything was kind of coming out at once. It was, it was incredible, yeah. incredible era. Yeah, Iglesias was big time there for a while. He was at the top of the game. So anyways... Sebastian's really good, too. I do enjoy him. He's funny. Uh, when we come back, um, uh, Brooks Kepka, the latest to uh, join the Live Golf Tour, and uh, why I'm not surprised whatsoever, because we actually said it was going to happen a couple of weeks ago. It's the more Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Well, I love you, baby. Brooks Kepka, the latest star to join the Live Golf Tour. Tomorrow, midday show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We were talking about stand-up comics last segment. And on the text line, you can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Somebody said Mitch Hedberg was the best. Yeah, he was wildly popular as well. He was great and unfortunately passed away at a young age about 15 years ago. He was another one like Dangerfield that was one-liners, one after the other, which seems so hard to do, just an hour Right within an hour, you get like uh, 200 jokes in the amount of material. Now, and again, I'm not trying to. This isn't supposed to be like uh, people say like we have the conversation in sports all the time, 
Right back in his, oh, it was there. He could play tougher defense back then. It was so much harder to score in the NBA. This is not supposed to be trying to compare eras. But now it's a little bit different. A lot of guys just tell stories. You get up there with like four stories, and that gets you through your hour. For a Mitch Hedberg back in the day, Rodney Dangerfield, they go on the stage with like 150 jokes and run through them, and you're laughing about the previous. You missed the next joke because you're still laughing about the previous one. I think that, I, I mean, I've never done stand-up comedy. I'll never try to do it. But I think that's really hard to do. I've had a dream before. It was like a nightmare that I got booked on like a stand. I think I may have shared this on the show. I got booked to do like a stand-up tour, and I had no material, and I was so worried. I was like, oh, shoot, I got to go perform this weekend. I got to come up with some material. So I had a dream about trying to be a stand-up comic and how tough it was. I would never actually try to do it. But yeah, Mitch Hedberg was, uh, he was really good, too, before he passed away. There's so many. You know, we didn't even mention Jerry Seinfeld. I think Seinfeld uh, is one of the all-time greats as well. And, of course, I love the show, love his stand-up. So that's another one. So many names you could reference. Let me get to Brooks Kepka. You know, I'll tell you what. You don't always have to be right in this industry. You just have to be interesting. But most people are wrong. And I, we're on a little bit of a roll here because uh, we nailed the NBA Finals. Uh, if you want to also want to talk about the Braves, I told you Matt Olson would have a bad first year in Atlanta. He's batting like 240 with whatever, five home runs, whatever he's got, eight home runs. Uh, not having a great year. And then when the Live Golf Tour started, I said Brooks Kepka would be one of the next guys to join. Here was Brooks. This was, la- this was less than a week ago. This was at the start of the U.S. Open. So this was Wednesday when he's doing press. And Kepka was asked about the Live Golf Tour. Here's what he had to say less than a week ago. Why have you decided to stay on the PGA Tour, and is that a permanent decision? I mean, there's been no other option to this point. So uh, where else are you going to go? Live. I mean, uh, as of last week, that's it. I wasn't playing last week. So I'm here. I'm here at the U.S. Open. I'm ready to play U.S. Open. So, And I think, I think it kind of sucks, too. Y'all are throwing this black cloud over the... Um, the U.S. Open, and I mean, it's one of my favorite events, and I don't know why you guys keep doing that, but, um, you know, the more legs you give it, the more the more you keep talking about it. Well, then sorry to ask another question about it, but uh, not sorry enough not to do that. Um, the In some ways, it seems like they're offering something that would appeal to you. You're a guy who, you know, really gets up for the majors, really loves the majors. At the moment, it seems like it would be an opportunity to play less in between the majors and still play the majors. What is that attractive to you, or do you prefer your current setup? I mean, I can come out here and play as little weeks as I want. I choose my own schedule regardless what tour I play. I come out here. I haven't played. I've played, what, match play, Augusta, PGA, and this one, so I can play as little as I want. And he'll be able to play even less now because he's joining the Live Golf Tour as announced officially this morning. If you've been paying attention, you probably could have saw this coming as well. For one, those comments right there last week. And I've used this... um, Example plenty of times, but in the office, right when they were looking to punish the whistleblower at Dunder Mifflin, and Joe Bennett, like the CEO of the company, said that if somebody says that you should take it easy on them, that's because they're probably you know guilty as well. But if somebody says uh, you should give that person the severest punishment, it's because they have a clean conscience. And it's the same idea. I remember talking about it at the time with baseball with their cheating scandal a couple years ago with the Astros, and we played clips and same idea. When certain teams would come down hard and say, you know, screw those guys. They should give the trophies back. Those are locker rooms that have nothing to hide. But when we'd hear certain athletes in Major League Baseball say, well, you know, it's going on throughout the sport. Uh, It's not the biggest deal. It's being blown out of proportion. Those are probably the teams that were doing the same thing and didn't get caught. And they can't be too strong because then you throw those words right back in their face if eventually they ever do get caught doing the same thing. And so Brooks Koepka with those comments last week, I thought that was also a tell. 
Right? If he had no interest in the Live Golf Tour, he'd come out and slam those guys. Instead, he didn't want to talk. He's, he didn't like that it was being brought up. Why? Because he knew he was probably about to join it. Now, he's still listed to play in the Travelers Championship this week, which uh, begins in two days. We know that when it comes to these punishments, these suspensions from the PGA Tour, they wait until you actually tee off with the Live Golf Tour. Their next event is not for a couple more weeks. So Kepka made the announcement this morning. He could still play this weekend at Travelers unless the PGA Tour you know, steps up and does something sooner. But if they're going to wait till he actually tees off, it'll be a couple weeks. But I thought Brooks Kepka, a perfect candidate for what they're doing with the Live Golf Tour. Because he only cares about the majors anyways. He could still play in those. He has quite the lavish lifestyle, so I'm sure guaranteed money, if they're going to throw $200 million his way or whatever it is, I'm sure he appreciates that. Gets to play less, just focus on the majors, and his brother already went to the tour. So I figured Brooks would be the next one up. And here he is announcing this morning that he's joining the Live Golf Tour. That's a pretty big name, right? Dustin Johnson's a big name, but eh, kind of underwhelming. Phil Mickelson, big name, but kind of over the hill. Kepka was the number one player in the world, you know, three years ago. Big-time player in the majors. That's a pretty big get. Jay Monahan will have a press conference tomorrow. The uh, commissioner of the PGA Tour will, of course, talk more about this tomorrow with Jeremy Schilling, who joins us every Wednesday. He'll join us tomorrow around 2 o'clock because the press conference will be at 1 o'clock. But it's an interesting time in the golf world. We'll talk more about it on the show tomorrow, but I wasn't all that surprised with the latest news. Brooks Kepka going to the Live Golf Tour, and it seemed kind of like a natural fit for him. We'll wrap up Hour 1 next. Tomorrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up hour one of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we'll get to uh, which college football programs will be the best over the next about three years. And also, we do a top ten list every week. It'll be a little bit different this week. But after the Warriors won that championship, a lot of talk now about Steph Curry being in the top ten. We'll actually look to see if he is truly a top ten player or are there ten players still better than him. We'll do that coming up. Hey, I saw this anecdote. Eric Backage, the new baseball coach for Clemson. Part of the reason, I believe, why you would uh, come to Clemson is because reportedly they threw like over a million dollars at him. They had money to spend. Now, we talked about it at the time when he was hired. I think it's a better opportunity as well. Spent a year coaching here as, as well with Clemson. But, of course, right, the money, just like we were talking about the Live Golf Tour, money doesn't hurt. Money usually talks. I saw this uh, interesting anecdote from a, a story done on Backage yesterday that when he was coaching with Clemson in 2002, first job coaching college baseball right out of college, he had a $200 a month apartment. I don't want to see that. Where are you living for $200 a month? I know this was 20 years ago, but still, that seems incredibly low. He had no cable, no air conditioning, and uh, he would just spend most of his time in the baseball office anyways. So 2002, Eric Backage, first job right out of college. He's coaching baseball, assistant at Clemson. He's living in an apartment for 200 bucks a month with no internet, no TV, no air conditioning either. Tough way to make a living. Now he returns as the head coach, making about a million dollars a year. Not bad. Hour two next.
This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Back, 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 back again. Shady back, back, back. Tell a friend, friend, friend. Guess who's back? 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 Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there, click on our show page. You can find the show podcasted right there. While there, you can also leave a comment for the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. You can text the show, 843-608-1734. Or join the conversation on the phones as well, 843-721-9500. On my Gmail, I hate, by the way, how Gmail now has, they've been doing this for a while, but how they have advertisements. They have ads in your own email. So the top two things are not actual emails, they're ads. Number one ad right now when I open up my Gmail, Sears. Oh, my. We were just talking about Sears last hour. So, A, they are still around. But, B, they're always listening. We were talking about Sears last hour because of uh, Sebastian Maniscalco's bit that we played. And now the top advertisement on my uh, Gmail is for Sears. Number two is Ralph Lauren. I haven't thought about Ralph Lauren in quite a while. But whatever else we talk about here over the, the next couple of hours, I'm sure I'll get an advertisement for that in my email as well. Go get a washer dryer, then get yourself a nice polo. How about <laughs> <That's> that? Right. <laughs> Call it a day. That's a pretty good day right there. Freshen up the home and yourself. Not bad. We'll get the Trent's takes coming up. I know uh, yesterday you didn't have the most popular opinions when it came to uh, Kyrie Irving going to the Heat right. and also <laughs> – potentially becoming a Yankees fan. Yeah, you, you know, I was getting called a, a bandwagon fan. Let me make something very clear, Luke Morrow. I have allegiances to my squads, obviously the Florida Gators, the Green Bay Packers, and the Miami Heat. I don't have a baseball team. I've never, like, looked at one sole baseball team. My dad's a big Astros fan, like I mentioned yesterday. But I've never, like, looked at a baseball team and said, all right, that's my favorite team. Baseball season, and we're in the summer now. I need something to watch. Mm-hmm. I want to get behind a team. And I think I've made a, a official selection that I will be riding behind for the rest of the season. Pretty pumped up about it. All right. We'll find out later later this hour. We should. Absolutely. All right. Get the drum roll going. <laughs> Who's it going to be? Better not be those Yankees. Well, I'm usually the kiss of death anyway. So the, the team that, <laughs> that I, I should have hopped on the Yankees, and then they'd probably start losing. Yeah, in that case, give, let's give that a try. Because nothing else is stopping them right now. Tired of these Yankees. Uh, the Warriors won their championship last week, of course, latest championship. A lot of talk about Steph Curry. You know, a lot of times we do this thing where we say he's a top five player, he's a top ten player, because they almost they give you like a feel of being a top ten player or a top five. It's almost like it should be a feel instead of being taken literal. You know, in a similar sense, we talk a lot of music around here. There's now a genre that's called indie. You know, when that started, the idea was that you were independent. You weren't with a record label. Now it's become like a sound, indie. They're not literally independent. They have a record contract. 
but it's become a sound. It's almost similar with these converse- conversations in sports where it's more like a feel. He feels like a top 10 player. But then the retort would be like, okay, sit down and do your top 10. And you're coming up with a lot of names that you're having a hard time saying, oh, and actually, yeah, Curry is better than that guy. And your top 10 list ends up with like 15 guys that you feel you feel like they're all top 10 players. But then as you sit down and actually draw it out, you see that it's very hard to narrow it down to the 10 all-time greats. So it's really more like a feel. I usually don't like these conversations of ranking like top five all-time, top 10. But we're going to do it today with Seth Curry because we're going to do it a little bit differently. ESPN.com for the 75th anniversary this year when they had the top 75 players at the All-Star break. ESPN.com did their own with their basketball writers, did their top 17 players all time. They had Steph Curry at number 16 at that time, back in February before this latest championship. So what we're going to do is look at their top 16 and see how many guys Steph Curry has jumped over on his way to potentially a top 10. We usually do a top 10 list on Tuesdays. This one's going to be a little bit different, but nonetheless, let's hit the intro. Time for the Tuesday Top 10, where we rank anything from quarterbacks to cheeseburgers right here on the Morrow Midday Show. Interested? So the idea is, has Steph Curry cracked the top 10? We'll get to the official top 10 from ESPN.com eventually, and that can serve as our Tuesday Top 10. But Steph Curry was in February number 16 all-time on their list. Has he suddenly become top 10 based off of that championship? Let's look at the players immediately ahead of him to see if Curry jumped over these guys. Number 15, and again, this is based off of ESPN.com's list from February with all their basketball writers putting this together. 15 is Moses Malone. And let me also, the other, before we dive into this, I also have to couch it with the statement of, If Curry is jumping these guys or these players aren't top 10, it doesn't mean they weren't phenomenal players as well. It's kind of like the conversation you have with Jordan and LeBron. And by saying LeBron's number two all time, that's some sort of like, can you believe it? He has LeBron as the number. That's a great honor as well. So in this case, same idea. If I'm putting Steph Curry above these guys, don't take that to mean I think these guys aren't very good. They're all great players. We're talking about the 15 greatest players of all time. Moses Malone, number 15, right ahead of Steph Curry. I think I would put Curry ahead of Moses. Now, Moses had a great career, and he's the only player to win back-to-back MVPs with different teams. Did win a championship, was a finals MVP with the Sixers in the 80s. But I do think Curry is ahead of Moses. The things that Curry have going for him, number one, just the individual numbers and success. Number two, the team performance with the amount of championships and leading the best dynasty we've had in a while. And then number three, the impact he's had on the game. So for Moses Malone, he had a great individual career. From a team perspective, he did win a championship, didn't win quite as much as Curry. And from an impacting the game standpoint, eh, not as much as a Steph Curry. I mean, you could say, you know, coming out, uh, Moses, um, uh, coming out at 18 into the, to the league, it wasn't commonplace. Number 14, though, Dr. J, one of Moses' teammates, has a better case to be made. I would still put Steph Curry ahead of Dr. J, but what Julius Irving has going for him is that he did impact the game. He added an element of athleticism and playing above the rim before Michael Jordan or before the great athletes of today. Dr. J, now he's first started in the ABA, but you go back to the 70s when he's playing in the ABA and then came over to the NBA, I mean, the things he was doing. And that classic reverse baseline scoop layup 
I mean, it's incredible. If you do that in today's game, it's still marvelous. So I would put Steph Curry ahead of Dr. J, but Dr. J does have a stronger argument than a lot of guys because he did have an impact. Not a lot of players truly impacted the sport itself. Like Jordan, I think, is the all-time great. I don't know if Jordan truly impacted the sport of basketball. He impacted the fans. You wanted to be like Jordan, but you couldn't go out there and be like Jordan. Steph Curry has changed the game in terms of the shooting. Magic Johnson changed the game in terms of suddenly now Six seven, six nine guys are playing out on the perimeter. Kevin Durant, six eleven, playing out in the wing. Magic was really the first. Even you go back to Jabbar, you know, you had to you had to change different rules for these guys. Uh, you, you had to outlaw dunking. Doctor J was like the first real above the rim type of player that impacted the rest of the sport. Where after him, you got a lot of great athletes like that that were playing above the rim as well. I would put Curry ahead of Dr. J. 13 is Akeem Olajuwon. I would put Curry ahead of Olajuwon as well. Now, he was a great player, probably underrated, even though he's the 13th best player of all time on this list. Underrated in the sense that he was overshadowed by Michael Jordan, and the only two times he won a championship was when Jordan was playing baseball. So if there was no Michael Jordan, maybe the 90s would have been dominated by Olajuwon and those Rockets teams that were pretty good. But because of Michael Jordan... Olajuwon never won otherwise, and really all guys of the 90s, you probably overlook because everybody was so wrapped up with Jordan. And these other guys didn't do enough winning, like a Patrick Ewing, right? Malone, Stockton, Barkley, all-time greats that never won a championship. We hold that against them. But it was a lot harder to win because you were having to go through Michael Jordan. So Steph Curry, I would put him ahead of those guys, Moses Malone, Julius Irving, and Akeem Olajuwon. That would put right now Steph Curry at number 13 all-time. Then we get to number 12, where it gets really interesting, because 12 is Kevin Durant. Who is better all-time, Kevin Durant or Steph Curry? I would put Steph Curry ahead of Kevin Durant. Now, look, it's, uh, there's uh, context to the conversation. There's a little nuance to this. I think Durant is a more talented basketball player. Just like I would tell you, I think Dan Marino is more talented than Tom Brady. Aaron Rodgers probably more skilled than Tom Brady. Uh, even like maybe a Peyton Manning from a from a all-encompassing skill set may be more talented than Tom Brady. But who's the greatest quarterback of all time? It's Brady. I think De- Kevin Durant is a more talented basketball player than Steph Curry. And I've always said that if you could create a basketball player in the lab or when you play NBA 2K and you're creating a play, you would create him to be just like Durant. He can score any way possible. He's probably got the best scoring skill set that we maybe have ever seen in the NBA with what he can do. Better than even a Jordan. But with that said, if we're talking legacies and careers or even impact on the game, I still put Steph Curry ahead of Durant. Just like Tom Brady may not be the most skilled quarterback to ever play, but he's certainly the most successful. And because that portion of his legacy, you put Brady above everybody else. Was he more talented? Like, if you were building a quarterback, would you take Brady's skill set or would you take Elway? Would you take Montana? You'd probably take those other guys. If we stripped off the names and you were just building from tools, right? you'd probably want a guy that could run like Elway and have that strong arm over Tom Brady. But Brady just has that uh, extra piece that the guy can't be stopped, and he always wins, and he's a, an incredibly uh, great leader, good teammate, cerebral. Right? He does all the other things that you really can't account for. Kevin Durant's a better player than Steph Curry, but I put Steph Curry ahead of Durant in large part because of Curry's overall success and the impact on the game.
And while Durant did win two championships and did it alongside Curry, he came to Steph Curry's team. He took the easy way out. It was the kind of the, you know, can't beat him, let's join him to go get his ring. Steph Curry has shown he won before Durant, he's won with Durant, he's won since Durant. So I think Curry is more important to the operation than Kevin Durant, as good as Durant is. That takes us to number 11 on the list. We're trying to see if Steph Curry truly is a top 10 player all time. Number 11 is Shaq. And this is where I really struggle. I don't know if I put Steph Curry ahead of Shaq. Shaq obviously has all sorts of rings. In fact, he has more than Curry, right? He's got five, Shaq. Has five championships, I believe. Four? Four for Shaq? I believe because he had three with the Lakers and then one with Miami. If I, if I, I'll look it up, but if, if I'm not right. mistaken. Yeah, maybe he didn't get another one after that. Well, either way, they both have four championships now that the Warriors won the latest. Shaq, again, I don't know if he impacted the game, but he was so unique. He was incredibly talented on an individual perspective. Yeah, it was four for Shaq. All right, so they both have four championships, so he's right there in the conversation with uh, Steph Curry. Curry played with Durant. Shaq played with Kobe, So and then Dwayne Wade, so you can even have that argument. I think I may put Shaq ahead of Curry. Shaq was incredible. Now, if you're of a certain age, you may only remember Shaq from the second half of his career where he was like a little overweight and couldn't really get up and down the floor and he couldn't play the whole game. But early Shaquille O'Neal, when he was shattering backboards and he was running the floor and catching alley-oops, I mean, the dude, and he's doing it at like 7-1. He was, we use the term unicorn now. Shaq was like the original unicorn. How athletic he was for his size. And he was thin for his size. Right, as he went on in his career, kind of happened when he went to the Lakers, kind of started to coast, wouldn't practice all the time, didn't work as hard, put some weight on. And by the time he left the Lakers, he wasn't really the same player or at least the same body as when he got to the Lakers. But I grew up in the 90s. I loved the Orlando Magic because of Penny Hardaway and Shaq. And you go back and you watch those Magic teams when Shaq first came in the league or go back and watch them at LSU. I mean, we really haven't seen a guy like that. With his size, his power, but also his athleticism, he was completely unstoppable. He stopped himself by becoming a little out of shape. And as he got older, the wear and tear on his body, he couldn't get up and down the floor, you know, started only playing half the games. But in his prime, oh, he was so good. I think I put Shaq ahead of Steph Curry, which would then mean Curry would be right now number 12, Shaq would be 11. And then to finish off the list, and this was put together by ESPN.com, we get to their top 10 players. They have Kobe at number 10, Oscar Robertson at number 9, Tim Duncan at number eight, Larry Bird, number seven, Bill Russell, number six, Wilt Chamberlain, number five, Magic Johnson, number four. Then you have Kareem at number three, LeBron, two, Michael Jordan, one. Would you put Curry, do you think any of those guys should not be in the top ten? Would you put Steph Curry in front of any of them? Again, my only argument would be maybe Shaq, which would then put Steph Curry at number 11. Don't know if I'm putting him ahead of Kobe. And I'm, I'm one, this may be a bit of a hot take. This may not sound great because Kobe has since passed away and, you know, you always want to be very sensitive. I've always thought Kobe was overrated. People put him in the conversation with like LeBron and, and, Kobe and uh, Jordan for the all-time greats. He's not in that conversation. But I think number 10, 10th best player all-time, I think that's a fair spot for Kobe, and I'd probably keep him ahead of Steph Curry. Oscar Robertson's one that maybe you would say Steph Curry, right? but Oscar almost averaged a triple-double for his career. And a different era, sure. Didn't do a lot of winning early on until he joined up with uh, Jabbar. But what an incredible talent he was. Tim Duncan, Larry Bird, Bill Russell, would you knock any of those guys outside of the top ten for Steph Curry? I don't think so. Right. Wilt Chamberlain, Magic Johnson. 
So the point of this exercise was to see, based off of just ESPN.com's list, but I thought it was a pretty good list, at least at the top of the list. Steph Curry was number 16 on their list in February. Does this last championship, latest championship, do enough to bump him into the top 10? I don't think so. There's been a lot of talk about top 10 player or maybe even top five all time. I think maybe he's just on the outside. Around number 12, number 11, maybe number 10. Maybe he does crack into some top 10 list if you want to put him ahead of a Kobe or potentially an Oscar Robertson. But I don't know if I would do that. The things that Curry does have going for him, this would be a completely different list. Uh, the impact. If you want to talk about the most impactful players on the sport, yeah, Curry would definitely be top five with those names I mentioned earlier. I'd probably include Dr. J, Magic Johnson, Curry, and then probably Jabbar would be uh, you know your top five of guys that changed the sport of basketball. That they would have to change rules for you know for Jabbar back in the day, or even for Wilt Chamberlain. You have to widen the lane to try to get him away from the rim. Those are guys that really change the game. Did Tim Duncan change the game of basketball? I don't think so. I mean, he's the big fundamental, but now fundamentals have kind of disappeared from the sport. So I think Steph Curry still sits just outside the top 10, probably 11 or 12. And I think ESPN.com, you could go find this list online at ESPN.com back from February, but just Google it. Uh, I think they did a pretty good job with the top players. So we turned that into a quasi-Tuesday top 10 this week. The, the best players in NBA history – I'll go off of ESPN.com's list. I'll take them at their word for their top 10. And then I probably keep Shaq 11, Steph Curry 12. Trent, would you put Steph Curry all time ahead of right now Shaquille O'Neal and or Kobe Bryant? I think there's an argument for Kobe. There, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I feel like you could argue. I, I wouldn't put him you know, up against Shaq. And granted, I grew up in a different era, like you mentioned, where Shaq was a little bit more overweight and you know, he was bouncing around from team to team to team. I didn't really see prime Shaq, but I've seen the documentaries. I've seen the highlight tape. There was nobody more dominant in NBA history than Shaquille O'Neal. Just look at the finals numbers. I mean, he was putting up crazy, crazy double-doubles every single night of the finals. That's a clutch player. Steph Curry, I mean, changed the game, obviously, with the shooting. Is one of the best shooters to ever do it in the NBA. It's tough for me to not put him in my personal top 10 because I didn't watch a lot of those guys play, like Magic and Oscar Robson and all those guys. Yeah. But I'd probably, out of respect for them, i say we have to respect the, uh, you know, the old heads in the game. So I would probably keep him just outside of the top 10. But if we're talking like my era, Luke, I mean, it's LeBron and Steph. That, that's where I go. And, they, and then everybody else. Then everybody else. I agree with that. Maybe now, maybe now, even Steph, then LeBron. Like, that, that's something, there's a huge argument for that. It's, it's, it's fair. You know, as I said uh, after Curry, after the Warriors won this championship, nobody was winning during Jordan's prime. When Jordan was the best player in the league in the 90s, nobody else was winning. Yet here for LeBron, when LeBron's been the best player in the league, and maybe he isn't anymore at this point, but still going back to a few years ago when the Warriors were winning their first championships, even with how dominant LeBron was, Steph Curry and the Warriors were still finding a way to be the best team in the league. And I think there's something to be said for that. You, you mentioned Shaq in the finals. Yeah. I think Shaq <laughs> is underrated because people yes. see him on TV now, and he's, you know, he's goofy, and uh, he's got a great personality. He's joking around. Or, again, you think back, he's one of those guys that maybe hung on a little too long. He bounced around. He's with the Celtics. He's with the Cavs, playing on these different teams, the Suns. And at that point, he was kind of washed up because his body just couldn't hold up. But, man, you go back to that first NBA Finals against the Pacers when he was with the Lakers, and Kobe averaged like 15 points or something. Shaq in that NBA Finals, he averaged 38 points, 17 <laughs> rebounds. That is absurd. 
against the Pacers in a six-game series. Those sound like numbers from Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell, where you would say, yeah, but they were playing a bit against a bunch of guys who were, you know, 6-2. This was 20 years ago when Shaq was doing this. And I think people forget that because it's kind of the end of his career, and then again, his, just his personality sense. Like Barkley, same idea. You see Barkley joking around on TV, I think you forget that he was, he was a great player. People see him as kind of this personality, and he's a goofball, and you can't really picture him as being a great NBA player, and he never won a championship, so everyone holds that against him. I think Shaq's similar, that you forget how dominant Shaq was like the first 10 years of his career, maybe eight years. Uh, he was so good. His first finals with Orlando, it was his second year in the league. He was 22 years old. He averaged 28-13 and 13 against Olajuwon. He was an all-time great. Uh, I mean, Shaq was incredible just because his size. He was 7'1", 320 pounds, and he's catching alley-oops, and he's breaking backboards. Like, How do you stop this guy? 38.17 rebounds in that finals in 2000. Now, he was going up against the Pacers. The Pacers were their big guys, and I love this era of the NBA, but they did have some uh, – some brutes inside that were getting beat up. I mean, Rick Smiths. I had a friend who loved Rick Smiths back then. I don't know why. Rick Smiths, Dale Davis, those were the guys that had to guard him. All right, you get like a Sam Perkins in there, Austin Crozier. Good names on that Pacers team 20 years ago. They couldn't, they didn't stand a chance against Shaq. Feel bad for those guys. No, feel, feel very bad for uh, those. Final Shaq was, and I think like you were saying, Luke, with the uh, underrated topic of Shaq, it's got to be because of Kobe, right? That, oh, you true. know, uh, Barkley says it all the time on uh, on Inside the NBA when they're arguing. They say, you know, I wasn't riding on the uh, Kobe Bryant's coattails, you know, Dwayne Wade's coattails. There might be an argument for that, but when you pull up the finals numbers, it's like, who was getting it done when it mattered most? That was Shaquille O'Neal. That's a good point as well, yeah. I do think Kobe is a little overrated by a lot of people. I know you don't want to speak poorly about those who have uh, sadly passed away. I think Kobe is overrated by a lot, and I think Shaq is underrated by a lot of people. And probably, yeah, because that goes hand in hand. Uh, you, you give a lot of the uh, attention to Kobe from those Lakers teams. And for good reason, but Shaq was. And by the way, Rick Smith, uh, I forgot how tall. He was 7'4". Shaq was dropping 38 points on him. Pretty good. Imagine that, 7-1 against 7-4 in the NBA Finals. What a matchup back then. Anyways, I could talk about old NBA Finals all afternoon. Uh, when we come back, would you rather have, if you had Aaron Rodgers money, would you rather have a personal driver or a personal chef? And would you go to the grocery store? We'll get to that next. The Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll get uh, to Trent's takes coming up, but i got to get your opinion on a couple of things. You're a big Aaron Rodgers guy. Huge. You saw the photo of him with, like, the girl in the grocery store? Yeah, being, you know, a nice yeah. uh, nice guy, as everybody, you know, calls it. He's a very nice guy, inter interacting with a mom and her uh, very little daughter at the uh, Trader Joe's, I believe, if, if that was the uh, store they were in. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. And this is not going to be some sort of, uh, you know, slant against Aaron Rodgers. I feel something coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in regards to Rodgers. It was a very nice photo. My question instead would be, I'm interested – 
if you're Aaron Rodgers, and I believe this was in uh, Wisconsin, in the area, why are you going to the grocery store? I wouldn't want to be bothered by it. If I'm Aaron Rodgers, I don't think I could even walk into a grocery store in that area. No. Everyone's yeah. going to be bothering you. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I, I, I'm not sure where the photo was taken. Uh, it might have been at one of his homes in uh, Los Angeles. might have been at his illustrious estate, you, you know, near uh, Green Bay, so potentially there. But, you know, this is just common man Aaron Rodgers. He goes to the grocery store like everybody else and just so happens to be, you know, one of the best ball throwers of all time. No big deal. Now, the woman who posted it, if you go to her profile, she doesn't have a location. You know, some people have uh, where, where they're located or whatever. On right. Twitter. But she does have all sorts of Packers stuff. Now, that doesn't mean she lives. She could be out. She could be a Packers fan living in California. She runs into Aaron Rodgers. I don't know. But I'm assuming I, I'm assuming it's around Green Bay. Yeah. Which, which, hey, props to Rogers. You're going out to the grocery store uh, by yourself or on your own like that. Well, I mean, we saw him. Remember, uh, he was in the back of somebody's truck going through a neighborhood with a case of beer, like That's in his true. O lineman. Where it's, uh, I mean, Aaron Rodgers is a common man. He's got, That's you know, $500 million in career earnings, not talking sponsorships. So, I mean, he'll be a billionaire at some point, but. My goodness, he's a common man. I love the guy. So then that's my question. If you get Aaron Rodgers' money, mm. what would you rather have? Would you rather have a personal chef who does all the cooking and they'll do the shopping for you? You don't have to go to the grocery store ever again. Mm. Or would you rather have a personal driver where they'll drive you around and you don't ever have to drive again? Ooh, oh, that's tough. That's tough. I, I don't know, Luke. I... I'm trying to get into cooking. I'm doing better at getting into cooking. But for somebody there to make all three meals and to do the grocery shopping, you know, uh, I would definitely take that. And, by the way, it's not if I get uh, Aaron Rodgers' money. It's when. It's when we get Aaron Rodgers' money, Luke Morrow. But I would say, I don't know. I've always dreamt of having a personal driver, though. So I I think I'll go with a personal driver because that's always something cool for me. If, you know. I want the cap. I want the suit and everything. Just let me hop in the back and let's let's get moving, pal. Just don't stop at red lights. Yeah, the personal driver is definitely better for like a status symbol. Yes, because people don't see the personal chef unless they come over to the house. Now that's nice. You have a friend come over to the house. He's like, you want something? Tell my guy. Right, he'll go make a sandwich for you. Yeah, tell Antonio. Yeah. he'll cook I, it up for he'll you. He'll whip up something. That's pretty good. But otherwise, the personal driver, you show up to any event, right? You're getting out of the back seat. Uh, that's pretty good. The driver opens the door for you. I think I would go. I can't cook, so I think I would definitely go chef. Plus, it would help you, hopefully, you know, keep like a good diet as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And if I never go to a grocery store again, fine with me. <laughs> so if I'm Aaron Rodgers, and, you know, I get it. Like, he's an everyman. But uh, I, I don't know if I'm walking in a grocery store in uh, the Green Bay area if I'm Aaron Rodgers. I'm going to have somebody go do my shot, or I'll have the groceries delivered maybe. He's an everyman who just happens to have an elevator down a cliff that goes right to the beach in Malibu. So, yeah. you know, take it with a grain of salt, That's folks. right, an everyman. <laughs> He's completely relatable to everybody. He's just getting his groceries at the store just like you are. No difference. Now, I heard Mike Greenberg tell a story about how he ran into Henry Winkler at a restaurant out in California while he was out there covering the NBA Finals. Green he was. And he didn't want to bother the Fonz during his meal. So he was going to wait to meet the Fonz on the way out the restaurant. And Greeny tells the story, he told it this week on ESPN, and he got distracted and he looked back and the table was cleared. Fonz was gone. Greeny went running outside to try to catch him, couldn't find him. So he got distracted, didn't notice that Arthur Fonzarelli and his family got up and left the the restaurant. And as Greeny tells the story, the Fonz was his childhood idol. That would be the one person he said that he hasn't met yet that he would love to meet. And as Greeny said, it's going to bother him the rest of his life that he blew an opportunity to meet the Fonz.
By the way, side note, I get not bothering people during their meals, celebrities. But if it's a case like that, maybe you make an exception. If that's the one guy like you've always wanted to meet and he was your idol. And as Green, Greeny told the story, he wanted to tell him like how important he was to him growing up and everything. He wanted to be just like him. If it's somebody like that, I know you may come off as a jerk, but maybe it's worth it to actually meet the guy instead of living with the regret that he was a couple of tables over and you blew your chance to actually talk to him. I wouldn't like to bother a celebrity with their family either, but if it's somebody that big, like the only time you'd ever do it, I don't know, maybe you make an exception for that one person. But that leads me to a question. Let me put you on the spot again. Would it be Aaron Rodgers? Who would be your guy that if you could meet anybody? Mm. Yeah, it would probably be Aaron Rodgers. It would be Rodgers. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I would first pass out, you know, come back to my senses, <laughs> and then want to have a deep intellectual conversation. Wouldn't even want to talk football with the guy. Just want to pick his brain. Seems like a very interesting human. Yeah, definitely he would be up there. He'd be, And then Leo probably would be mm. the uh, – Leonardo DiCaprio would be the other one. Yeah, that's a good one. That'd be cool. Leo would be on my list. Rodgers I could do without. That's okay. <laughs> I was trying to think about it, though. You know, I've been blessed that I have met a lot of people over my life just by happenstance, being in the right place at the right time. Number one on my list would probably be Tom Petty, but he's passed away, mm. so unfortunately, he, you know, that's not possible. Number two on my list would probably be Jerry Seinfeld, and I was fortunate enough to meet him, and that was quite the experience. So cross him off. I don't know. I don't know who it would be. I was trying to think of uh, athletes. I mean, probably jo- if I have a chance to ever meet Michael Jordan, oh yeah, I wouldn't turn that down. Right? That would be great. I've met Larry Bird before. He was a jerk. I uh, never met Magic. Magic would be a good one, too. But Jordan would probably be number one. If we're talking athletes, if I could meet a, an athlete, you know, I happen to run into them at the grocery store, Jordan would probably be number one. I'll be honest with you, high up on that list, maybe number two would be Brett Favre. Really? Even though he was with a Packer. He was a Packer for all those years uh, just because he played for the Vikings. And then even when he was, like, another one would be Derek Jeter. Sure. Hated him on the Yankees, but, well, I, I, no, I didn't hate him. <laughs> Jeter was the one Yankee I never hated. And Favre was the one Packer I never hated because they were just so good you had to respect them. So Jeter would be another one. Even though I hated the Yankees and I would root against him every night, I would love to. If I ever ran into Derek Jeter, I'd love that too because I understand how great they were and how interesting, at least Brett. But Jeter comes off, he portrays himself to be a boring guy. Brett Favre, right, he's got a lot of personality. He'd be fun to run into. So I'd say the obvious ones, right? Jordan, Favre, Jeter, the all-time greats would be the guys that if I'm in a restaurant and I see them at another table, like that'd be pretty cool. In terms of celebrities, yeah, I may have to steal yours. Leo would be pretty good. Yeah, Leo, Leo would be one that uh, you, I would not turn down. I, I don't care who I'm interrupting. I would not turn down to just go shake that gentleman's hand. How did you do it, sir? <laughs> how, do, how do you do it? Yeah, that's pretty good. I also tell you what, especially after this trial, I may go Johnny Depp as well. Oh, man. He seems like I, I just want to do a coloring book with a guy. It seems like a fun. It seems like <laughs> he was right. doing that during the trial. Yeah. It seems like a fun guy. I would love to hang with Johnny Depp. <laughs> and the other one, just for the story, we're talking actors. I may go Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, he seems like a lunatic. I don't really like his uh, personal decisions and his involvement in a cult. <laughs> but just to be able to tell people, like, hey, I talked to Tom Cruise, and he was a lunatic, right? Like, that'd be pretty cool. You being a foot taller than him, too. That'd be fun. <laughs> That's That'd also be fun. Well, yeah. alpha him a little bit. Yeah. Alphine Tom right. Cruise would be yeah. something interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'll give him a little chest bump, <laughs> rub up against him. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, give him a little shove. What up, Shorty? Yeah. How you doing? What do you think? What do you got, Tom? <laughs> huh? Sit down, eat your sushi. Well, you know, come on. That'd be pretty good. So I don't want to meet Tom Cruise just for the story. And by the way, I love Tom Cruise's movies. I don't know about him as a person. I don't know. But as an actor, uh, you know, I always loved all his movies. So Tom would be pretty good, too. 
That's about it. And people always say I look like uh, John Cusack, so I guess meeting John Cusack would be okay too. Although he's kind of he's he's kind of been blackballed because of things in his own life as well. Bunch of crazy right? Hollywood, bunch of crazy people. Throwing Dwayne Wade for me as well. I, that's another athlete I'd like to meet. Dwayne Wade. Yeah, that makes seems sense. like a good guy. Oh, overall, just seems like a good guy. That jogs my memory as we're continuing to add on to the list. <laughs> uh, Penny Hardaway was my favorite basketball player growing up. So if I ever get to a Memphis basketball game, uh, Penny would be cool to meet. Loved Penny Hardaway. I was see. I was originally thinking back to my favorite athletes. Penny was my favorite NBA player or basketball player growing up. My favorite baseball players were guys you probably don't even remember. Ryan Daubeck was my favorite baseball player. I'm probably the only person in the world who said that, who who would say that. And I was fortunate enough to meet him. And then Kevin Millar became my favorite baseball player, and I was fortunate enough to meet him. So, uh, I don't know baseball. Like I said, probably a Jeter, Pedro Martinez, David Ortiz. Would love to meet any of those all-time greats. Coming up, speaking of baseball, we may find out what team Trent is is jumping on the bandwagon of. Who is that favorite baseball team? Better not be the Yankees. We'll get to Trent's takes next. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Looking forward to catching up with Landon Powell at the top of next hour, former big leaguer, former Gamecock, and now national champion head coach, winning the Division II National Championship in baseball about, uh, what, 10 days ago at North Greenville. So we'll talk to him about all sorts of stuff, about winning that championship, about the Gamecocks, even about uh, just baseball in general at the top of the hour. Looking forward to that conversation. Speaking of baseball, we may find out. Which baseball team Trent's jumping aboard? As we do it around this time each and every day, it's time for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, it took a lot of uh, hard work, research, dedication into finding which baseball team I would like to cheer for for, you know, the entirety of potentially my existence mm-hmm. and uh, this year especially. I've decided, Luke Morrow, that I will be hopping on the San Francisco Giants wow. bandwagon. I, I, I wasn't going to do the Yankees because, one, I may not have a job here if I, if I chose <laughs> the Yankees. Two, you tweeted that, you know, you'd put mayo in my coffee. That was a yep. big no, which we have to try at some point. And three, I, I mean, fan talk would be an absolute nightmare if I was cheering for the Yankees on a, uh, on a day-to-day basis. So, with all those factors being said, I chose San Francisco. Now, San Francisco is one of my favorite cities on this earth. Absolutely love it. It's beautiful. Got to see the stadium when I was down there for a couple days. It's absolutely gorgeous. I like a lot of their players. The drama going on with a fancy football team. You give me guys that have been slapped on the field for fancy football, boom, I'm cheering for that team. They're three and a half uh, games back right now, I believe, of the Dodgers uh, in the NL West. NL West. Yes, I believe that's the uh, division they're in yes yep. nl west so i'm learning good. i'm yeah. learning and we got you know jock peterson a couple other guys that are studs need a little bit more production on the on the uh, offensive side for the giants but they're a late you know late season team luke all-star breaks coming up hopefully we make a couple good free agent moves and boom we're right back in this thing we're taking down the dodgers in the nl west and i will say it's very
very, you know, funny that I decided to go with the Giants, not knowing that they started a two-game series against the Atlanta Braves, which is absolutely hilarious. I love it. Can't wait to watch the uh, Giants tonight take down the Atlanta Braves in Atlanta. It's going to be beautiful. Jock Peterson home run. Lock it in right now, Luke Ma. Yeah, you plead ignorance, but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's part of the reason why you make this decision. Because they happen to be playing the Braves. A week from now, he's going to be a Phillies fan when they're playing the Braves next week. Yeah, might as well just cheer for everybody yeah. in, in the Braves division. You know, just to, not like stare in the pot, Luke. Yeah. But uh, I'm a San Francisco. I like their uniforms. That's another thing, I do too. Like yeah, too. so I'm a San Francisco Giants guy. I'm, uh, I'm all in, Luke. Here we go. I've always liked the Giants' color scheme. Yes. I like the interlocking SF on the hat. Yeah, I'm with you there. The Giants have always had good stuff. Uh, good uh, jerseys, good apparel. They got a nice ballpark, good area. You made the right choice. Of the options you presented yesterday, I thought the Giants were the best option. Now, this week, let's go Giants. Here we go, baby. Got to win the next couple. Yeah, there's going to be a pennant hanging in the studio. <laughs> San Francisco Giants pennant. 2022 World Series champs coming up here pretty soon, Luke Morrow. So I'm a San Francisco Giants fan through and through. And, oh, boy, am I going to be insufferable, especially if the Giants start rolling off a couple wins, Luke. So, folks, get ready for that. Should be a uh, should be a fun time. Now, Luke, got to pat ourselves on the back once again for the Brooks Kepka going to the live uh, the live. I believe it's series. It's not tour. Yeah, whatever they call it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's live series, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I don't mind the move whatsoever. It felt like Brooks, like you mentioned in the clip we played earlier, that he really didn't play a lot of tournaments. He can play whenever he wants. And he also, you know, usually just plays in the majors. This is a four-time major championship winner going over to live what's the number i'm probably assuming it's near dustin johnson at 125 million but do they factor in that he's got two more major championships in dustin johnson i don't know who's like a bigger name at the hierarchy of golf i would probably say right now brooks kepka maybe a tad bit over dustin johnson but I, they're probably even I, I don't know too much about golf but that's how i would assume it and him going over there, still being able to play in the majors, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on talking about the PGA compared to the Live Tour. And now the PGA is basically changing their entire model for 2023, doing more international events. But I had this thought, Luke, and I want to get your opinion on it. Obviously, we know that the, the Saudis have unlimited money, right? Trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. What if they just go to the PGA Tour, let's say a $40 billion check? and say, we'll buy out the PGA Tour. What happens then? Can they turn down that amount of money? You, you know, if if the, the Saudis just wanted to buy out the PGA Tour outright so they don't have to compete any longer? Yeah, that would be wild. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. That's why I, I just think about it, though. They have all the money in the world. If they wanted to solve, like, if, if Liv said, hey, we want to end this, what what's the number? $100 billion? Got it. No problem. It like, also, that's a normal Wednesday. Yeah. It would also turn everything on its head because they're so, you know, the PGA Tour has been upset with the players uh, jumping ship for the money. And then, you know, in the end, yeah. they, would, they would be just taking the big payday as well. That would be a fascinating scenario. In regards to Brooks Koepka, I forgot to mention this earlier. Did you see these old quotes from him? No. From, no, what happened? From two years ago? These are old quotes from Brooks. He said, money doesn't matter. It's not something that's important. I just want to be happy. Money's not going to make me happy. I just want to play against the best. If somebody gave me $200 million tomorrow, it's not going to change my life. What am I going to get out of it? I already have enough money that I could retire right now. But I don't want to. I just want to play golf. In hindsight... 
looks like some pretty dumb quotes because Brooks Kepka then essentially just did the opposite of everything he said two years ago. Right, no doubt. I mean, he's probably paying back for that Turks and Caicos wedding <laughs> that they right. had. I mean, that thing was at least two hundred grand to put on. Can't even imagine the lodging and travel. It was unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, smart, smart business move. And, again, I'll, I'll keep harping on this. I'm never going to harp on a guy who or, or girl, athlete, whatever, for taking as much money as possible, especially these guys can still play in the majors. Hey, if they're there on Sunday at the U.S. Open or, you know, if they make the cut, I'm all for it. If they're there at the Open, I'm all for it. If they're not at the RBC Canada, you know, whoops, uh, sorry. Half of them sit out anyway. So that's how I kind of look at it. I know I'm in the minority there, Luke Morrow. Now, the NBA draft you mentioned yeah. on Thursday. Can I, can I just say it once again, because I said it on the show during March Madness, Chet Holmgren is not going to be a good NBA player. I'm saying that right now. I don't think people are saying, oh, he's the next Kevin Durant. That's just because of his size and stature. He's not as fast as Durant. He doesn't have the handles Durant has, and he's not as good of a shooter as Kevin Durant is. Especially, Luke, if he gets drafted to, say, OKC. They have a lot of decently talented guys on the perimeter. He'll probably have to play down low. You're telling me that Chet Holmgren at seven feet tall, 165, 170 pounds is going to be, you know, trying to back down Joel Embiid, back down Nikola Jokic. No chance. Whoever drafts him, I think out of all these guys, like you mentioned, I'd take Paulo, uh, Paulo Bancaro, first pick overall, Jabari Smith, Jaden Ivey, Keegan Murray, um, the uh, Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. I'd take all of those guys, Luke, before I'd take Chet. I don't understand, you know, the big hype around Chet Holmgren. I mean, uh, watch the tournament. See what he did. He did nothing. He did nothing of importance in the NCAA tournament. He's going to be a t probably a top two pick. He's probably going to be the second pick overall. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not a big Chet guy either. Um, you know, he's listed at seven foot. We were talking about Shaq earlier. Shaq's seven one. He's seven foot. Imagine those two trying to go at one another. He would get eaten alive. <laughs> He's uh, on pace to become just the second player to be seven feet or taller and less than 200 pounds to play in the NBA. So that's the big concern for him is the body. Yeah, people compare him to like a Durant or some other guys that like even Joel Embiid was kind of thin coming out. But you could see those guys had they had broad shoulders like an Embiid. They had that build, even Anthony Davis, that they could put pounds on. For Holmgren, I don't have that same faith that even when he gets in the hands of these NBA trainers, that he's going to turn into some sort of, uh, you know, NBA body. And, yeah, he's not as skillful as Kevin Durant. He's 7'1". He's like 185 pounds. I, I think you have a better build. <laughs> or, you know, to, to quote Michael Scott, like Gumby has a better yeah. physique, whatever he said to Jim. Uh, that's the big concern. Yeah, I, here on the Morrow Midday Show, we're not very high on chat. No, yeah, and, and I mean, I I wish him the best. There's no doubt about it, but I'm just putting on my analyst hat here, Luke Mar. I'm sitting at the get-up desk and saying that Chet Holmgren, he ain't it. I wouldn't draft him. I, I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole if he's coming to my NBA program. Put on 68 pounds at Gonzaga, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit because you're going to have to bang against guys like Joel, like Nikola Jokic. I'm going to laugh at that when, as soon as we see it when he's just on the floor in five seconds because those guys are just going to overpower him. Absolutely crazy. Now, Luke, quick prediction. I was looking at the sports books as I do every morning, just looking at the odds, thinking what's going on, and I noticed that the Falcons have the worst odds to win the division in the NFC South, mm. and the Panthers have the uh, third best odds. I believe it's plus 1,300 for the Panthers, plus 2,400 for the Falcons. I will make this prediction right now. The Falcons will have a much, much better season this year 
than the Carolina Panthers. Wow. I don't think it's going to be close. I think the Falcons can win seven to eight games with the roster they have right now. I believe in Kyle Pitts. I believe in Marcus Mariota. Drake London looks like a very good player. Their defense is relatively solid in a winnable division, even though Tom Brady's in it. I think the Saints, Panthers, and Falcons. I think the Falcons could be the Panthers twice, split one with the um, split one with Tampa, and potentially split one with New Orleans. I think they're going to be a lot better. I, th- I don't see Carolina winning over five games. I'd go three to four, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh. And uh, the Falcons are going to win seven games. That's my. I think the sports books are getting this a little backwards here. I think the Falcons are the third best team right now in the NFC South. Wow, so the Panthers under six wins and the Falcons better than that. Interesting. Well, I'm just like, Luke, I, I'm a big Packers fan, but growing up here, like, you, you know, you always watch the Panthers because that's what's on television, right? Yeah. And before you had Red Zone and everything and multiple TVs, I would always watch the Panthers. I'm sick of this team. <laughs> I, I really i am sick of this franchise. At, at one point, are we going to look at it and say, what are you going to do to make this place better? Matt Rules won 10 games in two years, brought in all of his Temple coaches to come coach in the NFL. It's a men's league, all right? It's a little different than coaching college sick of it i'm sick of it the falcons are gonna have a much better season interesting i will say i will differ on you i think the panthers will have the better year mm. i don't think either team will be all that great this no year. no but i would think that the panthers they certainly should be better this year and uh, if they have that type of year that you're forecasting matt rule will be in big trouble very quickly this year we'll see what happens by the way we'll do this probably in the show tomorrow so you could start thinking maybe it's the falcons mm. but i want you to think of a team that's not going to be as good as everybody thinks right now, and the opposite. A team that's going to be better than a lot of people think. Maybe it's going to be your Atlanta Falcons. (laughs) But come up with a team that right now is overhyped and underhyped. We'll probably do that on the show tomorrow as we get ready for the uh, NFL season. When we come back, we'll wrap up Hour 2. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. And we were talking about uh, the Live Golf Tour. A lot of rumors about Colin Morikawa going over as well, or the Live, the Live Series, whatever they call it. Uh, Morikawa tweeted to state for the record, you're, you're, you all are absolutely wrong. I've said it since February that I'm here to stay on the PGA Tour. Nothing has changed. Now, if you'll excuse me, I got some cereal to pour in my milk. He knows what he's doing with that tweet. Trent, when you put uh, put together a bowl of cereal, you put the cereal in first or the milk? Yeah, like a normal human being, uh, I will uh, definitely put the uh, cereal in before the milk. Uh, yeah, exactly. Call more cow like we like to do sometimes, just stir in the pot. That's stir right. Stir in the pot. He's trying to take the attention away from Ooh. the live rumors, and now everyone's going to debate about uh, Colin Morikawa, how he prepares his cereal. And then next week, he's going to join the lift. <laughs> that'll be it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And he'll do it over a bowl of cereal as well, make his announcement. By the way, that's why I realized we were missing. We should have had the hats. We should have had a Giants hat, a Yankee hat, a White Sox hat in front oh. of you when you made your decision. Did a recruiting thing. Yeah, yeah I'll throw the hat out, see yeah. the Yankees, that's get right. out of here. Put the Yankee hat on first, Yep. get me ticked off <laughs> just to pull the old switcheroo, pull out a Giants hat. Ah, that's what we were missing. At one point, I was trying to collect all the hats in Major League Baseball. I don't know what happened to all those because I don't have them with me anymore. But I got pretty. I had a lot of hats back in the day. My parents probably threw them out way back when. Um, trying to think of other things like that. 
if you make chocolate milk, you're putting the milk in first, right? Then the syrup, you stir it up. Yeah, you ever the, make chocolate probably milk? A normal, like a normal yeah. human would. <laughs> you put cheese on top or the bottom of a sandwich or a cheeseburger? Or something. Uh, I mean, cheese on top. Yeah. Well, what cheese we, on what top. Are we, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> Trying to think of anything other, anything else in the food making world. Hey, how'd that chicken parm sandwich go? You make a chicken Ooh, parm sandwich? Yeah, chicken parm was good. Chicken parm was very good. I, I mean, my cooking skills are up there. Thank you to uh, HelloFresh. You know what right. I'm saying? All right. Hey, coming up with we'll ketchup with Landon Powell. Played for the Gamecocks, played in Major League Baseball, just won a national championship in North Greenville. He'll join us next. Hour three next. Tomorrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, some thoughts on Major League Baseball. The Braves with a nice win yesterday. And which college football teams will be the best over the next three years? We'll get into that coming up. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online, charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. And find the show podcasted there. While you're there, don't forget about our golf tour. Every Monday, 8 a.m., a new foursome goes on sale. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com and set your alarms to get your foursome for just 98.9. Next Monday, starting at 8 a.m. when the new week goes on sale. Because those foursomes go quick. charlestonsportsradio.com to take advantage of our 2022 summer golf tour with the latest round of foursomes becoming available next Monday, 8 a.m. Hey, North Greenville won the national championship this year in baseball. We were talking about it at the time, about 10 days ago as they were pulling it off. And joining us now is the head coach of the North Greenville baseball program, former big leaguer, former Gamecock as well, Landon Powell's with us. Landon, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, appreciate the time. Uh, I know it's been about a week and a half. How does it feel to be a, a national championship head coach now? Yeah, it feels good. Uh, you know, I, I uh, the congratulatory messages and those kind of things are not getting old. I I, uh, I I love them to keep coming, although I know that you know time's going to wear off here and it's going to get back to normality. But um, no, it's been fun. We've been been on cloud nine, just. Uh, proud of these players and what we've accomplished and um you know it's been a it's been a really fun several years turning this program around and to have the opportunity to go out this year and win it all was uh you know it was a dream come true for a lot of these players and, and coaches and um, just just really blessed to have that opportunity yeah now you won a lot as a player i know you won medals i think you won some state titles in high school the the SEC championship, obviously in the big leagues, you caught a perfect game. How did this compare as the coach? Not playing in these games, but instead coaching a team. How did this win, this championship, compare to some of the others in your career? Coaching is totally different because you don't really 
get to have the uh, a huge or as big an impact on the game. I mean, you do. I, I call some steal signs and some bunt signs, and I make some pitching decisions here and there. And you know, I called a lot of our pitches in the World Series. Uh, so I have some small impact on the game, but I don't get to swing the bat or throw the ball or, you know, um, whatever. And uh, so it's, it's nerve-wracking. You know, you, you feel kind of helpless sometimes as a coach. Like, man, I hope he gets this hit. I hope he makes this play. And uh, you just – and honestly – there's a fan part of you that comes out as a coach because you're rooting for your players and you're, you're cheering them on in big moments. And, and then when they make that play, it's, uh, it's kind of like watching your favorite sports team, you know, your, your, your favorite player get a big hit in that situation. Like you just, you're so proud of them and you, you feel like you, you know, you have their back and you're right there in it with them, even though you're not actually on the field. And uh, so that's transitioning from a player to a coach has been interesting. Um, As a player, I never thought about things as much because I was, I was in the game. I was in the moment, and I could make the impact. And as a coach, you think about it a way, you know, way more because you're trying to analyze every little thing and get whatever edge you can. Um, it's been equally as fulfilling. Um, I love coaching. I've really enjoyed teaching these guys the way to play the game, you know, showing them a lot of little nuances that maybe they didn't understand or know about and how those things have helped them mature as players and have success on the field. Um, it's, it's fulfilling being a coach. And uh, this year was – the ultimate, you know, not only these guys figured out how to play the game the right way, but they figured out how to kind of love the game and, and really love the process and, and enjoy the play. You know, I, I told some folks after the national championship, these guys, you know, they'd go play on a cow pasture with nobody watching and play just as hard as they did for that national championship. I had a group of guys this year that just love to play baseball and it doesn't matter the situation or the scenario. They just want to be on the field playing. And uh, as a coach, that's all you can ask for. You mentioned how it was an interesting transition. It, it, you made it seem like a natural transition. You came right off the field as a player. Your first job as a coach uh, professionally here is with North Greenville. And in your first year, you guys won only eight games. Now you're national champions. I mean, what was the most important part? What was the key to turning around this program? Because you've done such a great job in a short amount of time building up the uh, North Greenville baseball program. Yeah, the first year was a really impactful season. Um, so the, the eight-win team was actually the year before I got here. So okay. I inherited an eight-win program. Our first year, we were picked to finish dead last in the conference, um, understandably. They, only, they had only won two conference games the year before. In um, our first year, we actually went out and won the conference championship, 2015. So we won 29 games that first year. So that was a 21-game a improvement from the, the previous year before I got here. That year gave us a ton of momentum. Um, it, it kind of opened some eyes in the area of like, hey, they're they're playing some real baseball now at North Greenville, and you know we have three guys get drafted off of that team, so that that helped in recruiting, wanting you know some other guys wanting to come here and see if they could get their foot in the door professionally. And uh, the next year, I think we won 38 games, so it was a you know from eight wins to 38 wins in two years. That turnaround really just kind of pumped a lot of, uh, uh, well, I guess it, it just gave some lifeblood to the program and. Um, a lot of momentum. So that helped us in recruiting to get the next best caliber player. And we just continued to you know, raise the bar here. And, you know, we had some teams in 2018 and 2019 that were, were national championship caliber teams. I mean, they were every bit as good as the team I coached this year. And they're teams that could have won the championship. But, you know, for whatever reason, the ball didn't bounce our way or we didn't get the big hit in the big situation. And that's how baseball works. Um, but we've, you know, the last three or four years here, we've, we've started practice in the fall. Um, knowing that we had a good enough roster to win a national championship, and then it was all going to be about you know how healthy they stayed and how well they gelled and came together, and, and then how they performed. So this year, the, the team was able to get it done, um, and I've it's been fun. It's been seven years. 
Um, you know, if you would have told me seven years ago that we'd be winning a national championship, I just don't know if I'd have believed that. Uh, but we worked hard every day, and we've had a plan. We've not settled or been complacent. We, we consistently push for more and to get better, and um, it's worked out for us. Talking with Landon Powell, who is the head coach of North Greenville. They just won the national championship 11 days ago. You know, what I like about your team, uh, just from looking at the stats, trying to learn about your program, I'm an old-school baseball guy. I love how much you guys run. You had 145 stolen bases this year, which nowadays in baseball seems almost unbelievable. I mean, how important is it to, um, when other teams may not be doing it, to keep that that speed and uh, the stolen bases as such a big part of what you guys seem to do? You know, that was something I learned as a player. I, I was a catcher in my career, and, you know, when we would go play teams that, that ran a lot, it just constantly put pressure on you. Um, and, and I used to hate competing against those teams. Like the Anaheim Angels, their entire minor league system, when I was coming up against those guys like you know, Eric Ibar and, and Howie Kendrick and Sean Siggins and all these guys, they just ran every time they got on. And so you know, you're constantly having to slide step as a pitcher. You're having to throw a lot more fastballs to have a chance to shut down the running game. You know, you're picking over, and so pitchers don't get in a rhythm. They can lay down a bunt. They can go first and third on a single. You know, they turn singles into doubles by stealing bags. So I always, I always kind of like that brand of baseball, and, and so we've, I've tried to bring it here to North Greenville. You know, I think we have a unique combination of power and speed here. We, we had six guys in our starting lineup that hit 10-plus home runs, and then we also had five guys that stole 20-plus bases. So, um, you know, right at – I think one guy might have had 18 or 19. But, you know, regardless – uh, we, we could run and we could hit the ball over the fence. And so I think we had a pretty dynamic offense. And that, that just creates a lot of pressure and, and it doesn't let up on the other team. And you, know, you draw a walk, you steal a bag, that's just as good as a double. And uh, you're getting guys in scoring position. Um, also, we could lay down a bunt because we had speed. You know, so that third baseman had to play in on us a little bit. And that helped a lot of ground balls scoot right past him at third that were extra base hits. Um, you know, we could. We could lay down a bunt and put pressure on you to move runners over, but, you know, you have to hurry because our guy can run at the plate, and now, you know, you're throwing the ball away, and that's a couple runs. Just pressure is a great thing in baseball, and uh, that's what we want our offense to always create. Yeah, that's interesting because you, as a player, uh, you know, were a bit of a, a home run hitter yourself, but as you said, as a catcher, it was so frustrating to have to deal with that speed, so... When you look at baseball and the direction it's moving, I'm making an assumption here, but it seems like you know you like some of those old school factors that are that have been leaving the game for now. The home runs, uh, where where baseball right is becoming all home run, strikeout, or walk. What do you think of uh, of the modern baseball nowadays and how it's being played by a lot of people or teams or organizations? So I think the game is is, is it's a pendulum, and I think it's swung in the wrong direction for now. That's my personal opinion. I was a power guy. I didn't steal many bases. I mean, I stole one base in my major league career, you know, so I was not a base stealer, you know, but I was a home run guy. Um, the game now, like you said, is home runs and strikeouts, and that's because of the analytics that a lot of these MIT and Harvard guys have done. They've looked at, you know, what produces the most runs and what teams have the best chance of winning per at bat. You know, it's the home run. I mean, that it's not hard to figure that out, that you get a point every time you hit one over the fence. But, you know, it's hard to hit the ball over the fence consistently, especially with the pitching nowadays and how good those pitchers have become. And so, you know, you've been paying attention to the teams that are getting all the home run guys, like the Yankees, for example. They have a lineup full of guys that are going to hit 25, 30 home runs. Well, they're not winning any championships right now. Now, this year they look pretty good, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, they've been trying to win via home run the last 10 years or so, and it hasn't been working. I'm watching baseball thinking, man, the teams that are winning, like the Braves last year or the Astros or the Dodgers, these teams actually, they, they do run the base as well. 
They have higher on base percentages. They play great outfield defense. They're doing some things differently. It's not just gorilla ball that's winning championships. And I've always been a big believer that the game will swing back. That pendulum will swing. Some some front offices and GMs will realize, man, we can we can win without the homer. We can steal some bases. We can try the hit and run. We can lay down some bunts and, and break the shift. We can go first to third on singles and be more aggressive on the base pass. And I think that that brand will always work in baseball. It will always work. And I hope they go back to it mainly, Luke, because I think it's more fun to watch. I think baseball with the strikeout and the home run can get boring. And I want kids and I want I want kids to love to watch it. I need we need more action. We need the game to move quicker. Um, we, we need this next generation to love watching baseball as much as they love watching football or basketball so that our game continues to grow. And I'm afraid that the strikeout and the home run um, maybe might be losing some people. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I've said a lot of the same things uh, over the months and years when it comes to baseball. You mentioned analytics. You were obviously a catcher. So in your playing days, uh, when you met with the starting pitcher before the game to go over the plan, how um, how much analytics, how many, uh, were the analytics involved at all in your playing days, or has that just ramped up you know, since you've left professional baseball? No, it was definitely involved in our days. I mean, they have major league baseball when I was playing had a, a system called BAS. The computerized system, you go in, I mean, I could go grab Derek Jeter and I could say, show me every O2 slider that he's ever put in play. And it'll bring up all of them. And then I can go and click on the actual pitch and it will show me video of that swing. I mean, it's, it's crazy the, the amount of data that you have at your fingertips at the major league level. So, I mean, I would go and do hours of research almost every start, you know, on the opposing team, on the on, on pitch counts, on you know, if I had a sinker guy that I was going to catch that day, I'd go find other sinker pitchers that had pitched against this team and, you know, break down video of what success they had or what things they struggled with. And then you go meet with the pitcher and the pitching coach, and they've also done their own video, and you guys are all bouncing ideas off each other, and you formulate a good game plan. Um, so it's there's a lot, lot more goes into being a major league player, especially as a catcher, than just, you know, hitting some balls in the cage and, you know, warming up before the game. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. And uh, I love that part of it. It, it. it was every day it was like going to school. You're learning new things. You're, you're figuring more things out that can help you. And, and that was a fun part of it for me. A couple of last moments with Landon Powell, who played in the big leagues, played for the Gamecocks, now a national champion head coach for North Greenville. Uh, of course, maybe most notably when it came to your catching career was when you caught the, the perfect game with Dallas Braden. I remember it on Mother's Day, uh, you know, over a decade ago now. What's that like when you're a catcher? You know, I've broadcasted no-hitters I've, and, and never a perfect game. I've talked to the catcher, but never at the professional level. What's it like when, when you're locked in with your starting pitcher? And uh, in, in this case, you guys were perfect that day against Tampa. You know, I, I, uh, Dallas and I got drafted the same year, same same draft. So we came up in the minor leagues all the way together. That day probably was, who knows, the 70th time I had caught him in, in our careers. So I was very familiar with him, comfortable with him, him you know, his same with him, and I, you know, he was comfortable with me. Um, Dallas was a average to below average major league pitcher at that point in his career, you know, didn't have great numbers. I was a backup catcher in my second year in the big leagues. I mean, I would play once, maybe twice a week. So the, you know, the statistical probability of us being in the lineup that day, the two, and that happening, is just so small. And you know, it was, 20, it was the 19th perfect game in, in history over a 140-year period, and um, it was just a magical day. I don't know how else to explain it, man. I just felt like it was just the, the stars aligned, and you know, God showed us favor, and it worked out. Um, 
as a catcher during the game, I didn't even really think about it until maybe the fifth inning or so, and I realized, and I don't think he's, I don't, there's no hits. Like, uh, he's got a freaking no-hitter going in the fifth. But as a catcher, that's happened so many times where you had a no-hitter no going in the fifth or sixth. And you're just like, ah, you know, it, it, something will happen. <laughs> but that day it didn't. And then all of a sudden I was in, it was like the sixth or seventh, and I'm sitting there thinking, man, still no hits. I'm not sure anybody's even been on base. And I started, like, racking my brain. I was like, that hasn't been a walk or anything. I was like, oh, my gosh, he's got a perfect game. Then you get nervous. You're like, oh, crap. Like, I hope I don't call the wrong pitch, and I hope I don't. You know, there's not much as a catcher you can really screw up in a perfect game. You know, I'm not going to have a pass ball. Um, you know, I guess a strike three could get by me, um, but I, I wasn't worried about that, or I guess I couldn't feel the bunt maybe. But other than that, there's not a whole lot that I can screw up. So just making sure I was calling the right pitches and just praying that they hit it right at people. And um, that's ended up – that's how it worked out. It was a magical day. It's something I'll never forget. Definitely one of my top favorite days on the baseball field. Yeah, I can imagine so. Whenever we have no hitters or perfect games, we always talk about the pitcher. We should we should include the catchers in these as well. You're the one calling the game, and uh, you and Braden uh, worked so well on that day about 12 years ago. Um, uh, who I'm sure it's like picking your favorite child, but if I were to ask you, who was the most impressive pitcher you ever caught during your lengthy career? That I caught? Yeah. Um, whew, that's a tough question. Um you know, big league level, you know, the A's, we never had any, like, superstars. We had some guys that made all-star games. I mean, Gio Gonzalez and Trevor Cahill and Andrew Bailey. Andrew Bailey was rookie of the year. Those guys all were pretty special, um, just had some really lively stuff early in their careers. None of them ended up being, you know, they've all had 10-year major league careers and have been very successful, but maybe not household names. Um, yeah, I caught some guys, you know, Josh Hamilton, the guy I grew up playing with. And, you know, when we were in Little League, he threw four no-hitters in a row to win a state championship. Wow. You know, that was when we were 12. But, you know, I played with him all the way through high school and everything, and he was a 97-mile-per-hour left-handed pitcher, and nothing was straight. Um, I've been fortunate to catch a lot of guys. Houston Street and um guy named Kyle Sleet that went to Wake Forest in high school was the number four overall pick in the draft. He was a 96-97 righty in college. Um, there's been some really good ones over the years. Um, unfortunately, I think the best pitchers I've ever – been you know fate were guys that I faced you know so um, I, I wish I would have caught guys like Tim Linscombe and Roy Halladay and you know those kind of pitchers but I, I usually was always hitting off of them and it's way less fun to hit off of them than it is to catch them I can promise you yeah I'm sure two last things for you as we talk with Landon Powell just won a national championship with North Greenville about 10 days ago uh, we have uh, I guess you could say some sort of connection I was at a game at Fenway Park 11 years ago went 14 innings you caught that game for Oakland, uh, I don't know if you have any recollection of this game in Boston, but what's it like as a catcher to have to catch 14 innings in the big leagues? All right, so I'll give you recollection of that game. So I'm a backup catcher. So it's my rookie year in the big leagues. I'm hitting in the eight hole, so I pretty much know going into every game, if I just get a hit, like I'm probably going to get three, maybe four at bats. So if I get a hit, I'm going to be a 250 hitter, and I'm going to stay in the big leagues for 10 years. As a backup catcher, hitting 250, catching, calling a good game, throwing guys out stealing, you can play forever in the big leagues. So we're playing that day. It's it's hot day game. Josh Beckett is pitching, mm-hmm. and he's one of the best pitchers in the league. And my first at bat, I hit a ground ball to the right side through the infield for a base hit. And I think it might have been RBI, but I'm on first base, and I'm thinking, I'll tell you in that moment, all right, cool. I got my one hit. Now cruise control the rest of the day. Like, I'm good. I can go one for three or one for four, and, like, I'm, I'm living up to my numbers as a backup catcher, and I can stay in this game forever. That, that's just kind of a simple mindset. I'm you know, kind of half joking, but that's that's true. 
Well, I, you know, get up the next to bat, I hit a ball in the gap. Jacoby Ellsbury goes over and makes a diving catch. It was like the number two play on SportsCenter that night. All right, so he robbed me of a double. I get up my third at bat, and I think Bobby Jinx was pitching. He strikes me out. I get up my fourth at bat. I think uh, they bring in Papelbaum. He strikes me out. I get up my fifth at bat, which is an extra innings now. It's like the 12th inning. And Alcides Estevez, I think is his name, is a Mexican pitcher. He strikes me out. So now I've got my first hat trick of my major league career. And then I come up in the 14th inning, game on the line, and I strike out for the fourth time. So I started one for one that day thinking cruise control. This is going to be an easy day. And I ended one for six with four strikeouts. And wanted, you know, all I did is I went back to my hotel and buried myself in my sheets and just, you know, like – like sulk the rest of the day because I was now an embarrassment rather than thinking I was going to be one for four and be in cruise control. So that's how a backup catcher can think sometimes in the big leagues. And, uh, you know, it, it did not end the way I wanted it to, but I do remember that day like it was yesterday. I promise you. <laughs> that's a great story. I'm sorry to bring up a bad memory. It was a lot more fun for me in the stands than, uh, than, than dealing with that. Uh, before we let you go, Landon, I know uh, you've been asked before about, you know, tr- returning to your alma mater as the coach one day, of the Gamecocks, uh, I won't ask you specifically about that, but I am curious about aspirations. You know, if you stayed with North Greenville for, for 20 years, would you be ca- content with that? Are you looking to maybe one day get to the big leagues? What are your goals as a coach now that you, you know, you're a national championship head coach? What are your aspirations as a coach? Um, you know, they, things have changed a little bit after I got into coaching. When I, when I first got into coaching right from retiring from the big leagues, I was, you know, I wanted to climb the ladder fast. I wanted to get to the highest level and show what I could do. And that was kind of my player's brain still affecting me as a coach. Now that I've gotten into coaching, I really value the relationships. I I, I enjoy the niche that I'm in. I feel like I'm making an impact on the game. I'm making an impact on the players that I deal with every day. And, and sometimes I think if I wasn't here, would, would this same impact be be being made on these guys? And um, so that makes me value where my feet are. Um, My wife and I have young kids. Uh, We love Greenville. My son's just turned 13. My daughter's nine. So we're not, like, itching to go anywhere. We're not itching to move. We're very happy where we are. This is a good season of life for us. Um, I've made it very clear that, you know, my alma mater is a place that I just love dearly, and they were great with me in my career. Uh, it helped shape me as a man. So um, any opportunity I would have to go back there, I would have to consider. You know, I, I just just I feel like I owe that school. Um, and so if they ever wanted me back, I would definitely have to consider that. You know, other than that, I'm not like looking for opportunities. I'm not itching to go places. I'm I'm very happy where my feet are. And um, if I stayed at North Greenville the next 20 years and coach, I think I could definitely be happy with that. I've I've accomplished a lot in my career as a player, and uh, so that that helped me check some boxes off of my list that I don't feel like I'm chasing as much as a coach. And uh, I feel like I can kind of you know pour into these players and and, the, and these athletes I'm coaching now and try to pay it forward to their generation. So I can do that here at North Greenville just as good as I can anywhere else. So if that's my number one motivation, then what am I looking for? Um, so that's kind of an answer to that question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also a very open-minded person, and anybody that wants to talk to me about something, I'm always you know, willing to listen. But um, I, I could see myself here at North Greenville for a long time and enjoying what, doing what I'm doing. He's Landon Powell. He's the head coach at North Greenville. He just won a national championship, played in the big leagues, played for the Gamecocks as well. Landon, I know we kept you long, so appreciate all the time and the, the inside and the stories as well. Congratulations on that national championship. And uh, we'd love to catch up with you at some point down the road as well. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate you having me on, man. Hey, pleasure's all ours. Appreciate it. Landon Powell, the uh, head coach at North Greenville. A pretty good recall. It's ama- I always say this about athletes. It's amazing how they can remember things so well from their career. Uh, my father will tell me stories from his playing days, and I don't want to date him too much, but it was quite a while ago, and he remembers you know, the play-by-play from games all these years ago. 
Uh, it's remarkable. Appreciate the time from Landon, and congratulations to North Greenville winning the national championship uh, about uh, less than two weeks ago. Big-time win for them, and a great job done by Landon turning that program around in a short amount of time. When we come back, some thoughts on baseball. Big win for the Braves last night as well. We'll get to that coming up. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Tomorrow midday show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Appreciate the time. Last segment from Landon Powell. Played in the big leagues, played with the Gamecocks. Now the head coach at North Greenville. They just won a national championship. He's probably doing more press now than in his actual playing days. He's all over the place doing all sorts of interviews. And, you know, he's an interesting guy to talk to. He's a good interview. Appreciate the time from him. And, of course, now a national champion as well. That doesn't hurt. If you ever miss anything from the show, such as that conversation, you can find it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcast. Two things to follow up. Number one, again, I'm always impressed with uh, how good the memory is of these athletes. He nailed just about every pitcher in that scenario of his game at Fenway all those years ago. That went 14 innings. And uh, I remember that game as well. Now, I had to jog my memory. Right, They call me Rain Man around here. But this one I didn't actually remember for sure. I always look at my Facebook memories. It's the only reason why I use Facebook. And I see what I was posting about 10 years ago. And usually it has to do with sports. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Usually only talking about sports. And so I saw it was, uh, we just passed the anniversary. It was like June 4th, 2011, I think it was. I had posted about going to the Red Sox game. And so I said, oh, what game was that? Then I looked up the game. And once I looked it up, I remembered being at that game. I went with my father. He made me drive. And uh, because I got to drive, I also got to choose the music, and we listened to I Used to Love This Band. I don't think they're together anymore. Good Old War, great band out of Philadelphia, and we listened to their album on the way home. After a 14-inning game, it was like a six-hour game. Fortunately, it was a day game. And then uh, the Red Sox won, and then you hop in the car. I had to drive back from Boston. Good time. And he was uh, Landon Powell's the catcher for all 14 innings there for the A's against uh, the Red Sox. Appreciate the time. The other thing, too, is you know he caught that perfect game with Dallas Braden who uh, I think Braden's the youngest pitcher to throw a perfect game. He was like 26 at the time. He did it on Mother's Day. I was just talking about this uh, yesterday on the show about how these things always seem to happen with these emotional connections. He did it with his grandmother in attendance who raised him, Dallas Braden, that is, the pitcher. His grandmother was in attendance. His mother had passed away uh, from cancer when he was young, so his grandmother raised him. Grandmother comes to the game on Mother's Day. He throws a perfect game. It's perfect. He went over, hugged his grandmother afterwards. Um it was, uh, you know, it was a really cool moment back in uh, 2010 for Dallas Braden and the A's. But a lot has been made about uh, Garrett Cole. Had a no-hitter for the Yankees last night that he took to the eighth inning. Michael Kay is the TV broadcaster for the Yankees, and everybody was giving him a hard time because he kept mentioning the fact that there was a no-hitter. This is something that I have always been, people are very strongly opinionated about this as a broadcaster. And I've told other young broadcasters who um, weren't following through. But I can't stand when people complain about the broadcaster jinx for a no-hitter, how you're not supposed to say anything. It's your job to inform the audience. People may be tuning in for the first time. You have to say it. And if you think that the broadcaster has any control over what happens on the field based off of the words they choose, right, that's nonsense. But the story I remember was when I was in minor league baseball, we had a no-hitter. 
Uh, I was saying it throughout the broadcast, and uh, multiple people called the radio station to complain that I was saying that there was a no-hitter, which is so absurd to me, especially on radio, where you could tune in and have no idea. At least on TV, they could put a graphic up, and the broadcaster wouldn't have to say it. On radio, you're tuning in, you have no idea. i got to tell the story. A no-hitter going on. So it's been a big argument here the last about 16 hours from last night. Michael Kay's taken a lot of heat online from uh, ridiculous uh, baseball fans. But everybody's saying, right, the broadcaster can't mention a no-hitter when it's going on. Now, that's garbage. It's your job to tell the story, and they have no impact on the game. And I kept Landon Powell long enough, but if we had uh, even more time, I would have asked him about superstitions because I get it from a player perspective, right? You're not supposed to talk to the guy in the dugout. I get that. Let him, uh, let him be, do his own thing. But that's actually involving the pitcher. For the broadcaster, they can't hear what you're saying. It doesn't make a difference what you say. By the way, if I had a no-hitter going or a perfect game, I think I'd want people to be talking. I want to be distracted. I know I'm locked into the game, but like I would want to be. They always let you sit by you sit by yourself in the corner, and everybody ignores you, and they don't right, don't talk to me. He's got a no hitter going. Like that almost adds more pressure to me. I'm looking around like, hey, how come no one's coming near me? I feel weird. It throw like, throw me off. No one can talk to you. You try to go talk to somebody, they don't want to like talk back because they don't want to jinx you. Right? You, it's almost like everyone's ticked off at you. If I was in the big leagues and I was throwing a no hitter, I would say you know continue as as normal. Uh, let's joke uh, joke around in the dugout. Let's talk about it. You don't need to ignore me. Like I got uh, some sort of uh, virus over there and sitting in the corner all by myself. Like uh, Steven Glansberg. Hey, um, Major League Baseball, we're in about the middle of the season. Big win for the Braves last night, right? So the Braves walk it off against the Giants. This is a big test this week against Trent's Giants. This is a big test this week. You get the Giants, then you get Freddie Freeman and the Dodgers, then you get the Phillies. And this is what I was saying about Atlanta. They went on their 14-game winning streak, but they beat 14 teams with losing records. This is a real test this week to get the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Phillies, and they started off with a big win last night. Uh, Pitched well. Max Reed was really good. They get the walk-off. So a good start for Atlanta. Let's see how they do as the week moves forward. In regards to Major League Baseball, when you do look at the standings and you look at the teams doing well, I have always argued for years even when I was a kid, I could understand this. Growing up as a big-time baseball fan, before I even got into this industry where I had a microphone to voice my opinions, baseball has always needed a salary cap. But it's not to, and I understand the timing of this. I'm a Red Sox fan. I don't like the Yankees, so you know it could come off like uh, this is sour grapes because the Yankees have the best record in baseball. And so here I am saying, we need to change something in baseball. Right? I could understand uh, the timing of it all and why it looks bad. But this doesn't have to do with the Yankees' success this year. This is about baseball in general. They need a salary cap. And they need a salary cap, more importantly, because of the salary floor to have teams spend a certain amount. That's the most important. Salary caps, they help. They can only do so much. Golden State Warriors will still spend right a lot more money uh, and pay the luxury tax because they have a lot more money, and they're willing to spend more on their team because they, you know, they got a rich owner and, and no problem. It will curb only so much, but the floor is also very important as well to make sure certain teams are spending money. And when you look at baseball, look at the teams that are doing well. You have the two New York teams are the best. The Dodgers are right there as well. Um, you have the Toronto Blue Jays have the top wild card in the AL, you know, biggest city in uh, Canada. You have the Houston Astros, a big market there in the AL. Uh, even the Braves are the team of the South. So you have kind of the typical teams, and also the teams from the uh, bigger markets, which is kind of why, like, with the Minnesota Twins, although they did spend some money with Correa, but what they're doing is uh, impressive, even Cleveland. 
right? But then your Kansas City Royals are terrible. Oakland A's spend no money, and they're terrible. Uh, the Orioles, the Mariners, the Nationals, the Reds, the Rockies, these teams that are spending no money, they're not in these huge markets. It's not New York or L.A. or even Chicago. They don't have very good baseball teams. And it's just, you know, it's kind of another year in baseball. This is what typically happens. The World Series champ over the last 20 years, all of them have been top 12 in salary cap. In baseball, you got to spend to win. There is no salary cap. Uh, I should say all, to- all 12 are top, uh, all, all World Series teams are top 12 in payroll, is what I meant to say, because there is no salary cap. The more you spend, the more successful you'll probably be. It may not equal a World Series. You don't necessarily buy a championship, but you certainly buy an opportunity. You buy yourself a seat at the table uh, by spending money in Major League Baseball. And it's easy to put it all like on the owners and blame the owners. But don't forget, when we had the strike in 1994, that was one of the things they were fighting over. And it was the owners who wanted a salary cap that would also include, because they always do, a salary floor as well. And the players didn't want that. And that was part of the, uh, the lockout or the strike back in 94 in Major League Baseball. So we can call the, the owners greedy, and, and they typically are. But also, right, the players didn't want some sort of restriction either. They didn't want some sort of salary cap so that they can make as much money as humanly possible. So we talk a lot about baseball needing a salary cap, and the common retort is like, yeah, but, the, you know, those cheap owners, uh, they, they, you know, the owners, uh, you can understand why they'd want a salary cap because they don't want to have to spend so much. But it would also come at least with a floor that would force teams like the Orioles to spend a little more, the Royals. The Tampa Bay Rays are successful, but they spend no money, right? It forced them to spend a little bit more. The Oakland A's never spend any money. Right? A bunch of these teams, the Pirates, have been lousy for years. They don't spend any money. And so here we are, uh, you know, approaching the midway point of the baseball season. And, again, pretty typical, the teams that are spending the most. You look at the highest payrolls in baseball, and it's the Yankees and the Mets and the Dodgers and the Astros, and these are the teams that are in first place, the Dodgers that have the best records in baseball. No surprise. Just like college football, you can predict who's going to be the best teams going in. Baseball, there's a lot of that as well. Just look at the team spending the most. There's always a surprise, right, like Cleveland. The fact that Cleveland, they are spending nothing this year, and they're over 500. They're a bit of a surprise. But typically, you know who the teams are that, are, you know, the good teams are going to be heading into baseball, and it usually plays out as expected. When we come back, uh, the football teams, college football teams, that could be the best over the next three years. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. And the wind catches your feet, sends you flying, flying. Who will be the best college football teams over the next few years? The Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, the big news out of the football world is that Rob Gronkowski reportedly is, is retiring once again. We'll see if it sticks this time or if he comes back. But uh, Gronk retiring, so Brady loses one of his uh, pals and one of his weapons there in Tampa for the time being at least. Or maybe he'll be like Tom Brady. He'll be retired for about 33 days and then come back. We'll see. And it's like the old, uh, and maybe Gronk will never play again. I don't know. I mean, he's taken a beating over the court. That's why he retired the first time. And then he took a little time off, you know, felt good enough to come back. But I remember back uh, when Brett Favre was with the Vikings and uh, he would, quote, unquote, retire just to, so he could skip, like, training camp. And then, all right, like, I'm ready to go for preseason in August. I'm not saying that's what Gronk is doing. 
But I also wouldn't be surprised if uh, as we get closer to the season or midseason, like he returns for the second half of the year if the Tampa Bay Bucks are in uh, you know contention at the top of the NFC. But in the meantime, you take him at his word, and uh, Gronk is retiring, according to reports today. So that's the latest in the world of the NFL. A lot going on in the golf world as well. The PGA Tour trying to keep up with what's going on in their sport. We will uh, talk about that more tomorrow. And Jeremy Schilling, of course, will join us tomorrow. Uh, the commissioner of the PGA, uh, Jay Monahan's having a press conference tomorrow while we're on the air, so we'll see what comes from that tomorrow. So could be an interesting day in the golf world. We'll uh, get to all that tomorrow. But ESPN.com put out a story. Adam Rittenberg put together his rankings of the best college football programs for the next three years, trying to predict their futures. And his rankings have Alabama at number one, Georgia at number two, Ohio State number three. No surprise there, usual suspects. Then Texas A&M 4, he puts Clemson at number 5 for the next three years. After that, Notre Dame is 6, Oklahoma 7, Michigan 8, USC 9, and rounding out the top 10 is LSU. Adam Rittenberg's 10 programs that he thinks will be the best in college football over the next three years. And in his breakdowns, he gave each team a future Quarterback ranking score as well. Future offensive ranking, future defensive ranking. So if you've listened to the Morrow Midday Show before, you probably know where I'm going with this. I'm most concerned about the future quarterback ranking. That's what stands out to me the most. Now, some of it's hard to predict. When you're talking three years down the road, who knows? Maybe they bring in right, one of these programs, brings in a talented recruit a year from now, and they could play as a true freshman. Or three years from now, they, they play as a sophomore, their second year, if they uh, come to the program a year from now. And they're an incredible quarterback. They're a Trevor Lawrence. Who knows? hard to predict the future when it comes to college sports because of recruiting in the nfl right you think like yeah i could see rogers being there for three more years or Mahomes. right you could try to forecast the future in the nfl a little better especially with contracts college football is a little bit different transfer portal recruiting you have no idea what the quarterback situation will look like in the future but we can have a pretty good sense like lincoln riley has always done great with quarterbacks and now he's at usc is probably going to get great talent as well after caleb williams I assume the quarterback position is always going to be fine for Lincoln Riley at USC. Alabama, it's a safe assumption. They'll always be fine at quarterback under Nick Saban, especially the way they've been pumping them out lately. Georgia, a little bit of a different question if we're being honest here about quarterbacks. I mean, Stetson Bennett, I know he won a national championship and he played pretty well this past year, but he's not one of the best quarterbacks in the country. Will that open the door for some better quarterback play at Georgia or will they always have to try to you know, get by with a Stetson Bennett moving forward. But the quarterback ranking is most important for me. So when you look simply off of quarterback ratings, he has Ohio State number one for the next three years. Alabama is uh, number three. Texas A&M is number four. Um, I'm trying to find who has number two. I'm looking all over here. Oh, USC number two. Makes sense. Your top four teams. When you get to Clemson for quarterback ranking, they're 17th future quarterback ranking. Now, again, there's a great unknown. Maybe Cade Klubnick is going to turn out to be an incredible talent. Maybe uh, somebody else steps up over the next couple of years at that quarterback position. But that's the big concern to me. Adam Rittenberg has Clemson number one for future defensive rankings for the next three years. 13th in offense, 17th in quarterback. And I talked about this last week with Clemson for this upcoming season, that Clemson very well may have the best defense or a top two or three defense in the country this year still doesn't necessarily mean they'll win the conference. It takes great quarterback play to win nowadays. 
But putting Clemson at number five overall over the next three years, I don't have a huge issue with it. I'm very curious to see how this year goes. I'm not ready to jump ship yet on Clemson like a lot of people have. But I think you have to show something this year to make me believe you could get right back to that point of competing for national championships like you were, you know, just two years ago. A couple of bad years in a row. Maybe you missed the playoff for a second straight year. And then I become a little bit concerned. Not using the transfer portal. Questions at that quarterback position. When I look at these programs, for me, it's a lot about the uh, quarterback ranking is the big one. And while Clemson's number five overall, Adam Rittenberg puts him at number 17 for quarterback ranking. And I think that's a big issue here moving forward. You don't have the same concern for an Alabama, even now a USC or an Ohio State, and those are the programs you're trying to keep up with. Now, overall, when I look at these rankings, I mean, I don't have any serious issue. Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, top three, sure, that's fine. A&M with the talent they're bringing in, you want to tell me they'll be uh, a top four program the next few years? I could believe it. I could buy it. They've brought in a ton of talent recruiting-wise. Clemson, five. He has Notre Dame, six. I don't know. I'm not as high on Marcus Freeman. I don't know if Notre Dame will be a top six program over the course of the next three years. Oklahoma, seven. I don't know if I have that much faith in Brent Venables either. Michigan at number eight. I'm concerned about them this year, but over the long haul, I could give Harbaugh, you know, I'll I'll give him some credit. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I think USC at number nine is a little too low. Uh, I would bump them up. I think they could be a playoff team within the next three years. I don't know if I would say the same about Notre Dame or even Oklahoma or even Michigan if they would get back. And the other one, too, outside of the top 10, he has Miami at 11. Maybe I'm uh, just buying into the hype, but I think uh, Mario Cristobal is going to be really good for Miami. And I could see Miami over the next three years being better than the 11th-ranked program. See, I think the big thing in college football, of course, right? they always say about college sports, the team with the most talent usually wins the majority of the games. And I think the big advantage for Lincoln Riley at USC and Mario Cristobal at Miami is that I think they're going to have a real edge in the talent in their conference. Clemson's the other competition for Miami. But I think Mario Cristobal, he's shown he's a really good recruiter. I think he'll do a great job recruiting Miami. And outside of Clemson, I don't think he'll have a ton of competition of teams in the ACC that will keep up with him. Same idea in the Pac-12. Dan Lanning just took over at Oregon. I think they'll always be okay because it is Oregon, and you got Phil Knight and you know all that money and the, the resources. And I think Dan Lanning will be a good recruiter there as well. But, like, Utah's a really good program. Kyle Winningham does a good job there. They're never a top recruiting team. UCLA, never a top recruiting team. Right, USC, now that you have Lincoln Riley, you have the money, you have the resources, and you have the coach. I think they're going to kill it in recruiting compared to the rest of their conference. And so you're going to have such a talent edge, USC will, compared to the rest of their conference. Miami, compared to the rest of their conference, at least outside of Clemson. This would be my forecast for the future. And I think those two teams could do very well in their own conference. A lot of times, all you need is talent to win out. And then when it comes to winning the biggest games, see what happens is you can win the Pac-12 if you're USC just because you have more talent than the rest of the conference. Miami, maybe eventually they get to a point where they win the ACC in the next five years just because they have such a talented roster. But if they were to get to the playoff to try to compete with an Alabama, with a Jordan, no longer are you going to have the most talent. That's when it comes to scheme. And I think that may be the difference with uh, Mario Cristobal in terms of the X's and O's trying to outcoach like a Nick Saban or a Kirby Smart. Lincoln Riley, I would trust a little bit more. I think he's a really good offensive mind, but we've seen his teams perform poorly in the playoff. But those are the two crucial parts you need as a coach, right? If you could just bring in a bunch of talent, you're a great recruiter, you can go pretty far. You can't go all the way, but you could, get the, you could at least get a seat at the table. 
And then to try to win once you get there, that's when you have to be a good football coach, a good Saturday coach, X's and O's, to be able to out-scheme the other team when they have that talent advantage. So when I look at the future of a USC and Miami, I think these coaches are going to do a good enough job to at least get them to the table. Can they then compete with the best teams in the country in a college football playoff? I'm not so sure. But I think USC and Miami, again, outside of Clemson, will have such a big advantage from their talent on their roster compared to the rest of their conferences that they'll be very successful under these coaches. But when you look at teams and how good they'll be over the next uh, three years, as I said, based off of Adam Rittenberg's um, ranking, I don't have any huge issue with the top five, but I would probably drop Notre Dame from six, Oklahoma at seven. I drop them down, and I would certainly bump up USC, who he has at number nine, and Miami, who he has at 11. I'd bump those two programs up for the next uh, three-plus years in college football. And most importantly, it comes down to quarterback, which is another reason why I like the future of USC with Lincoln Riley. And another reason why you can always trust an Alabama and an Ohio State and maybe Lincoln Riley and why I would have concerns about a Clemson and even a Georgia at that quarterback position. But you could go see the list for yourself, ESPN.com, Adam Rittenberg, put it together. We will uh, wrap up your Tuesday when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Going to the local Whole Foods in uh, Green Bay to go get some kombucha with uh, Blue Sky. There you go. I don't mind. A day in the life of Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Taking photos with uh, with fans. I saw that in your brain. Uh, come, when we come back from break, Luke was working on that. Before. That song's ruined for me now. <laughs> Anytime I hear that song, I'm going to think of Aaron Rodgers' new witch girlfriend, Blue, Blue of Earth, whatever her name is. She doesn't identify as a witch. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you ever miss anything with the show, such as our conversation earlier about Rogers in a grocery store and who you would like to run into. You can always find that on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. We're going to have plenty to dive into in the golf world tomorrow with all that's going on. And Jeremy Schilling will join us as well. We'll probably have some more clarity on Deshaun Watson's situation as we get more information on these uh, reported uh, settlements as well coming out today and also we didn't get to this today but uh a bit of a terrifying clip involving jerry seinfeld and a joke and i'll explain all that tomorrow on the show as well call that a tease we'll have a lot to do tomorrow if you ever miss anything in the show catch it on demand in the meantime life is a series of hellos and goodbyes for now we say goodbye we'll say hello again tomorrow at noon it's the more midday show on espn radio mm-hmm.